Look, Chris, it's a great idea, and I don't see why you're not on board. It's not going to work, Brian. Come on, man. Everyone needs insurance. Yes, but do you really think people will take out policies on their favorite Game of Thrones characters? Of course. People get really emotionally invested in Game of Thrones, and those guys die all the time. It's win-win. But if they're always dying, won't that mean you're paying out a lot more than you're taking in? Shit. You know, I thought I could offset that by defining being a Stark as a pre-existing condition. Mead? Mead. Components us nation, it's time for another electronically stimulating episode of Digital Noise right here on oneofus.net. This is the weekly Blu-ray DVD review podcast that is often pixelated but never duplicated. I am your host, Brian Salisbury. Don't worry about that smell. And I am joined by my partner in crime, Mr. Christopher Lawrence Cox. I am that smell, so I appreciate you covering for me, though. <laughs> oh, that smell. It's actually Chris on the couch. Mm-mm. Yes. That's a smell of my scent digging into fibers. Yay. It smells yeah. like victory. <laughs> well, we're back with another digital boatload of titles for you this week. But first, some housekeeping. Uh, I want to remind you that Digital Noise, just like all of our content on One of Us, is available on iTunes. Just search One of Us. In the podcast section, we've also joined Stitcher, which I feel uh, there were uh, people asking for, but I don't feel like those people are actually using yet. So we're on Stitcher, guys, so go use Stitcher. I didn't know what Stitcher was until people started asking. I was like, okay, sure. I still don't quite know. Stitcher, sword. So we're there. We're there. For those people who are are into Stitcher, now we can be found there. Uh, We're also on Twitter, at DigiNoiseCast, or you can follow the site, at One of Us Net. And, of course, Facebook, One of Us Net is there, facebook.com slash One of Us Net. And really want to encourage you guys to become subscribers. Uh, you can give $1 to $25 every month or just make a one-time donation. We've got some cool stuff coming down the pipeline incentive-wise for our subscribers. And we're going to be doing a video to explain all of that. But suffice to say, lots of cool stuff happening there. And it'd be a good time to become a subscriber. Get in on that ground floor if you haven't already. Yeah, that's your cool badge right there. You cool badge. Say, I was a subscriber to oneofus.net before it gave me anything for doing it. You could be a subscriber hipster. We'd be like the only type of hipster we'd be okay with. Well, that's not necessarily true. I still like the arcade fire. <sighs> anyway, it's time to reach out to the Intersphere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open that most questionable of coffers we call the letter box. got mail. Yes, the letterbox. Thank you, Torgo. Uh, our first question comes from Lawrence Gaines, who says, this may be crazy open-ended, but what's your least favorite way for a film to end? He says for him, he loathes the freeze frame. Well, I mean, it worked in Clue the movie. I love record. freeze frame, for the record. <laughs> it, it, it's, an, it's a very 80s thing. Yeah, that the Jay Giles band was great. Yeah. I'm not sure there's any one way I'd say I hate for a movie to end. It's so contextual. Mm. I, I was thinking about this. So I was like, can I think of any one thing that I'm like, oh, yeah, I can't stand that. I mean, at best I can say when the movie leaves it up to the audience, but it hasn't earned that. When yeah. It's like we don't have an ending. But, you know, sometimes that works. Like like in uh, the, whatchamacallit, uh, the Intuition, Insomnia, what the fuck's the name of it? Uh Inception? Inception. <laughs> Intuition, insomnia. You're to say something with in. 
I don't know why I can't Indecisive. Remember. Inception. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and where they really earned that. It's a big puzzle movie and it works its way up where you know enough where you have all the pieces you need to know to make an informed decision one way or the other. And sometimes it doesn't with any number of other films where it's just like, you know what? We just didn't really have an ending here. So we'll just be like, what do you think happened? Yeah. Shut up. I mean, I think for me, the thing that really bothers me is... Like, this person is still missing. If you have any information, please come. I'm like, don't do that. Don't try to sell us on things being a true story when they are absolutely positively not a true story. Okay. I think the fourth kind was the absolute worst, where it's like Mia Jovovich comes out, listen, guys, for serious, this is not fake. This is a totally true story. It's like, no, it's not. Yeah, Stop this lying. Is the same rule as not posting April Fool's Day pranks with a warning saying, this is not an April Fool's Day prank yeah, you or can't a do Photoshop job. That's against the rules right there. It's against the rules. Not allowed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, our second question comes from Michael Sunderland, who has more accent marks in his name than I think I've ever seen in my life. Sunderland. Michael Sunderland. Michael Sunderland. Asks, what are some of your favorite original weapons to be featured in a movie? Okay, well, there's a lot of obvious answers, you know, out there. Lightsabers obviously go in there. The Tron dit, like a... The identity, identity disc, disc, yeah. Uh, the, the glaive from Kroll. Stuff like that that everybody says. So I was like, I'm going to dig a little deeper here. And oh, try shit. and find some stuff that's actually really awesome that I love the shit out of. That isn't even always necessarily from great movies, but the weapon was so cool. And the first thing that came to my mind was that badass rail gun from Eraser. Mm. That Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Yeah. That had the thing that could see through walls and it fired faster than the sound speed of sound that thing was amazing it was almost worth watching that movie for. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest of the movie just erase it from your memory uh, <laughs> you're late sorry traffic sorry uh, traffic but really my and, all right so and then the uh the gristle gun from existence remember the one that like he forms out of like picking oh, yeah. a, a chicken apart and takes all the pieces and forms it into a gun using his own teeth as bullets that was pretty fucking cool. That that is Cronenberg to a T. Yeah, but my all-time T, favorite even. Uh, is the ZF1. It's light, handles adjustable for easy carrying, good for righties and lefties, breaks down into four parts, undetectable by X-ray, ideal for quick, discreet interventions. A word on firepower: titanium recharger, three thousand round clip with bursts of three to three to three hundred with the replay button. Another Zorg invention. It's even easier. One shot and replay sends every following shot to the same location in the direction of the Mangalores. If you're watching this movie. Uh, and to finish the job, all the Zorg oldies but goodies. Rocket launcher. Arrow launcher with exploding or poisonous gas heads. Very practical. Our famous net launcher. The always efficient flamethrower, my favorite. And for the grand finale, the all new ice cube system. So, been watching Fifth Element lately. That it's gun been, is awesome. It is awesome. <laughs> it is definitely awesome. Uh, well, I was, I was gonna say the glaive, but apparently that's what everyone says. Although I will say this about the glaive. It's an awesome weapon to brandish. But it is entirely impractical. You throw it once, it gets stuck in a rock. Yeah. End of glaive. Well, I mean, it's one of those things you got to suspend your disbelief like Captain America's shield. You got to go. He's just that good at throwing it that he knows how to avoid that. Yeah, but that's a, <laughs> yeah, that's the thing because the hero in Krull is definitely not that good because the fucker no. throws it one time and it's like it, it's like a frisbee going into the neighbor's yard. It's like oh well, fuck it, it's gone. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, but definitely the lawgiver from Judge Dredd that oh, has, like, go. all of those, like, capacities within one gun that are voice activated. I've totally forgot about the lawgiver. The lawgiver is is probably my, my favorite weapon. And then, of course, the proton pack. I mean, as much as it's more yeah, of a containment yeah. and less of a, of a destructive weapon. It's a weapon. weapon if you're a ghost. It is a weapon. <laughs> if you want to be afraid of no ghosts, you definitely need to have a proton pack, so. You know, as far as, like, traditional, like, gun weapons go in movies and best-known ones, that... I always forget the name of it, but that railgun from Aliens uh, that Vasquez has on, like, a belt loop. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the minigun thing. <laughs> yeah, that's good shit. <laughs> that's good shit. That is good shit. <laughs> well, much ado been thusly made. Let's dive into the reviews. And reminding you yet again that everything we talk about, if you are viewing this on oneofus.net, Below in the post, you will see an image for each title. If you click on that image, you can get to Amazon. If you buy that title or anything else, as long as you get to Amazon via our link, anything you buy benefits the site, and we really, really appreciate that. Please keep doing that. And we're going to start off this week with Ride Along. Yeah. You know how it's it's fun. Like, we're to the point now where, like, some of the earliest movies we reviewed on the site are now hitting video. Uh, yeah, it's like actually hit that mark now. Yeah. I didn't actually see this theatrically, so this was my first time seeing it. Oh, okay, it. cool. Um, and, I mean, obviously, every you know Hollywood would love for the buddy cop action movie to become a big, huge, selling billions of dollars. Look, we just open spot, input uh, a old grizzly guy that people used to love in his prime and brand new young up-and-coming comedian into these roles, who two cops who hate each other. There's been a billion movies like that, and they used to be a lot better than this. I used to be able to watch those movies for 48 hours straight. Ah, uh, I see what you did there. And then another 48 hours even. <laughs> okay, okay. Sorry, those jokes are lethal. You were saying. <laughs> oh. Ah! I can't even reference Beverly Hills Cop in it, and you see a single way there. There's no way to go there. See, but I the heat is on now, because I made all those jokes, and now you have to. <laughs> Damn it. I'm going to judge Reinhold you. Harshly. Uh, um, you know... I like Ice Cube. I do. He's not a great actor, but he has a certain gravitas to him, especially when he's supposed to be rough and mean and, like, grumpy. He's an old G, and that G stands for gravitas. That's what people or, don't know. Or grumpy. <laughs> or grumpy, yeah. <laughs> and in here, he's very grumpy, playing the detective, police detective, who does not approve at all of his really incredibly hot younger sister's new new uh, fiance played by Kevin Hart. For the record, I don't approve of that either. Yeah. There's just something too disparate about that. I'm like, you with him? Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, especially considering she's like a foot taller than him. <laughs> well, most women are a foot taller than Kevin Hart. True. Well, there's a lot of look how short you are jokes in here that <laughs> even though they're funny at first after a while, you're like, hey man, leave the guy alone. By in here, <laughs> the here you're referring to his entire career, right? Yeah, probably. Um, And I, you know, Kevin Hart is funny enough. I don't have a real problem with the guy, but it's, I mean, it's not even his fault, really, the point that they kind of push this to the point. You're like, okay, you're starting to Chris Tucker this. You need to, <laughs> you need to pull back your Tuckerizing. Just pull back <laughs> just a bit. Um, and he's, you know, this gamer type guy. You're never really quite sure what she sees in him at all. I, I have no idea. It's like some girls really genuinely are just looking for a guy that makes them laugh, even if it's at their expense. It's the only possible explanation I can think of here. But he ends up in a position where she's like, why won't my older brother approve this guy? He's like, I just want this guy's approval. He has just gotten into the police academy. He hasn't actually gone in yet, but like they accepted his application. He's all excited. And Ice Cube's like, you know what? I'm going to get rid of this guy once and for all. And uh, says, hey, you want to do a ride along with me? I'm going to put you in the car. We're going to 
we're going to take you out in a day. And he tells the people back at, you know, dispatch, put us all, just send me 126s, I believe was the number, which are just the cases nobody wants because it's like some crazy person taking off their clothes in a public place or something yeah. like that. Domestic disputes and, and uh, public intox and all the shit, all the shit cases, and essentially. Of, co- of course, this goes everywhere you think it's going to go, you know, slowly Kevin Hart's becoming dispirited as these cases start to. Like, you know, he's he's frightened by the situation because it is kind of frightening. And Ice Cube going <laughs> under his breath. But, of course, eventually they get wrapped up in a real situation that you know is coming because of the whole movie Ice Cube's chief is yelling at him. Don't make me take your badge away. You you can't, you got to stay by the law. You can't act like some sort of wild cowboy. I got the mayor chewing my ass out. <laughs> no, wait, no, that doesn't actually happen, but it just seems very familiar. I, I will say this, whereas I found the first half of this film really dull and not fun at all once it actually got to the point where they were actually going off and dealing with the the primary you know the real situation i actually started to have kind of fun with it i found like especially the final denouement if you will the last 20 minutes or so i did not expect the word denouement to come up in the review of ride along i just like saying that word whenever possible uh with kevin hart dealing with the scenario and saving ice cube basically it's actually pretty funny it's actually a pretty cool sequence at least that's what I thought. Well, you know, I I I refer to this movie as Training Wheels because <laughs> it's for it's it's a very similar setup to Training Day, but watered down for people who are like Training Day is way too much for me. I don't know. I I I'd, I'd much prefer a comedy. Uh, so that's what you get here, and I, I I just feel like Kevin Hart has zero on-screen charisma. And initially, when he was taking like smaller roles in other comedies, I was like, wow, this guy's pretty good. But the more he's kind of been force-fed to us as audiences, I've just – man, the shine is this really worn off. And I'm just like, I, I can't I can't do this. I can't take this. Uh, and, and, man, Ice Cube, who has claimed to not be for the pop charts, is once again doing some really poppy fucking movies. Like, this is just a couple of F-bombs away from being one of those uh, Are We There Yet movies. And, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Once they actually – get to the the principal antagonist and what's really going on. There are a few more enjoyable moments, but overall it was just man, I couldn't I couldn't get behind this. And even even the way it's shot is bad. Like that opening sequence has a lot of promise and then once it turns into a car chase, it's edited so poorly that there are t- there was one point that something blew up and I didn't even know what it was. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. Wait, was that his car? I know what you're talking about. Was yeah. that that car? Really poorly put together. And this is by director Tim Story, who is one of those guys who they keep giving chances to and he keeps showing that he doesn't have it in him. You know, he did both the Fantastic Four movies, which need I remind you, were fucking terrible. <sighs> no. Uh, he did uh, Barbershop, which I guess some people like. I've never seen it, but I always hear that like, it's not too bad, but Taxi, which I did see in, was fucking horrible. Taxi is one of those, like, apocalyptically bad films. Yeah. No, see the French version. That's really awesome. But the, the American version? <laughs> it's called Taxi. Taxi. <laughs> yeah, Tim's story is not a good filmmaker. Think like a man. Oh, yeah, another Kevin Hart vehicle that I was not too fond of. But, yeah, I mean, there was obviously an audience for this film. I just don't think it was me. And I and a lot of people like to claim that it's it's a racial thing. Like, this is... A movie that white people won't like, and I don't, I don't get that necessarily. This movie is pointed at people who are nostalgic for '80s buddy cop films, exactly. Which I am, but you have to actually like most of those movies. What they do well, uh, like *Lethal Weapon*, is they do the comedy stuff well and they do the action stuff well. You have to walk in both worlds and do it well. And I feel like this kind of did neither and very well. It's just. Uh, 
the stuff in it that is supposed to be like make the audience go, oh my God, is like so ridiculously predictable ahead of time. It's like they barely even bother for it to be twists. They're just like, you know what? We're just going to, we're going to foreshadow this to the point of almost having the characters look at the screen and go, oh, by the way, I'm a bad guy. Yeah. Um, although, like I said, I did, I've, I found myself laughing several times towards the end. One of the reasons Lawrence Fishburne has a really different for him type of part in here that he chews on with great relish. That's fun. <laughs> I, I enjoyed watching that. Yeah. But, uh, but overall, this is really, it's, it's a mess. It's a, it's a Sunday afternoon. I'm hungover. Oh, look what's on TNT. Fuck it. I don't feel like moving. I'll watch this movie. Can't wait for the sequel. <laughs> oh God. Uh, there's commentary with Tim's story. There's a gag reel, which was, you'd expect a gag reel for a movie like this would be a lot more fun. But the only funny thing at all was some woman in filming wouldn't let them keep, go back to filming because she kept going, I love you, Ice Cube. <laughs> and he's like, I love you too. You do know we're filming. I'm working. Shut the bro. fuck up. Shut the fuck up. I love you. Okay. That's great. Oh, good Lord. I'm I wonder how often that actually happens. I, I don't know. That just seems like obnoxious more than a gag reel. There's various featurettes on the aspects of the film. There's an alternate ending where it shows basically Kevin Hart at graduation for the police academy, which seems to me the reason they cut that was because they're like, oh, maybe we should make part two be while he's still in the academy. Yeah. So I, I, I yeah, wouldn't hold your breath for. Does Michael Winslow show up in the alternate ending? I know he should. Totally. Right? How awesome would that be? I, I will go see this movie in the theater if Michael Winslow is in it. If I'm they make saying. the second one more like the Police Academy and bring like Gutenberg and Michael oh, Winslow are you back, kidding me? Make Steve Gutenberg the old like guy who runs the place, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and he's he's just fed up with Kevin Hart's antics. <laughs> he's the new commandant. Exactly. Okay, we have a script to write. I'm telling you, we're gonna get somebody call Tim's story right now. It's like, <laughs> no, you really have no choice. This is what's gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there's a bunch of little silly things. It's just uh, the fi- the behind scenes stuff isn't as funny as you'd think it would be for the- for something like this. So. As as a uh, is mirrored in the film. Well, I mean, like I said, it's got moments, and I think these two genuinely have some degree of chemistry together. But you know, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. Is the best thing I can say about this. I film. think that was the exact thing I said in my review. Is like, it wasn't quite as bad as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, I actually I wasn't or like two thirds of it was as bad as I thought it was going to be, and then a third of it wasn't. I wasn't bored, per se, and there were moments I genuinely laughed, but overall, it was like going... It was like re-watching a movie for the second time that you only kind of liked from 1986. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> they should put that on the fucking poster. <laughs> Moving on from there, we're going to talk about Once. What? What are we talking about, Once? Well, Once, uh, we talked about this movie. Once... Oh. Yeah. Are you going to do any jokes about the Onceler? No. No? No, I, I got nothing, man. I, I, I have never seen this film, actually. Oh, so. God, I love this movie so much. And you can stamp that hipster badge on me if you want. I don't give a fuck. This is a 2007... Just inking it up over here. ...Irish musical film uh, that was made for, like, something like $160,000, almost nothing, and all, barely got made. There's all these struggles that went through along the way to get made, and it's a fascinating journey. There's a lot of extras on this that really detail all these things they, you know, just sort of by the seat of their pants put together to get this film made, and then it went on to win awards all over the goddamn place, including <laughs> the Oscar for Best Song. Yep. And sure enough, the song to this movie is... Beautiful brain virus things that once you've heard it, it's there for like a week. Just give it up. Nothing, even like sugar, sugar isn't going to help you at that point. You know, <laughs> you, you, or I want candy or any given song that's poppy. That's about sugary treats. I was going to say, you must be hungry. <laughs> <laughs> no, really? It's just something about songs about sugary things are always those ones that are like, you know, should be, cons- you, you know, you need Norton antivirus to get out of your brain. Pour some sugar on me. No. Okay. I get it. I see it. <laughs> uh, but 
this stars uh, actual real life musicians, musicians, Glenn Hansard, and I have no idea how to pronounce her name because it's got accent marks all over it, but Margetta Urglova. Uh, and, Mar- yeah, I don't know. Uh, they actually knew each other in real life. In fact, he was friends with her dad and they, he was in a really big band called The Frames in Ireland. Uh, and, they were on tour and her dad introduced her when she was 13 years old to him and was like, she's a really amazing musician. And they actually stayed friends to the point that when he started investigating making this movie with this guy, uh, originally it was supposed to be uh, Cillian Murphy, apparently. Really? Uh, or Killian Murphy. Killian sorry. Murphy. Uh, and Killian Murphy backed out for a number of reasons, but it felt, it seems like the main thing was that, uh, he couldn't sing as good as the girl could. <laughs> but Glenn Hansard, who was just supposed to be helping put it together and writing the songs, ended up stepping into the lead character's role ver- versus this this girl who's much younger than him. She in here plays a, a young Czechoslovakian immigrant flower seller who forms this weird sort of friendship with him. He's a busker, one of the guys who stands on the street playing music for money, basically, uh, while he's trying to build songs. And the whole time he's heartbroken about the woman who left him, you know, and most of these songs are about that. But right off the bat, you're like, God damn, this guy's a really incredible, incredibly talented musician and singer. And the lyrics are just heartrending. So when they form this connection, uh, he immediately thinks it's going to be something more, and she's like, whoa, whoa, whoa uh, no. But they, they fix it up, stay friends, and the whole movie is kind of about them. It, it's kind of about the process of making songs and making an album, the way two creative people come together and, and make something happen. But it's also this love story of a sort where these two people, God, they belong together so much it hurts to watch this thing. It really does. And it's, you know, it's it's... It's sad in its way. It's both sad and uplifting when it comes to the end. I can't say without really spoiling it, but most of the appeal of this is really incredible musical scenes, uh, great naturalistic performances from two people who really aren't actors, the two leads. And, uh, like, you know, just learning about the background, I mean, these two actually fell in love and were in a relationship for several years after on the set of this, even though he'd known her. She's, he's like 17 years older than her, but it was one of those, like, he was fighting it the whole way because she was 19 at the time and he was like 37 or something. He's like, nope, nope, she's too young. She's too young. And finally, it was one of those, like, after pretending to be in love with her for six months on set, it was too much. Wow. And you can't blame him because she is just beautiful and just heart-wrenching. And this is one of those movies that's either going to get to you and rip you apart because it'll remind you of so many things. It'll remind you of the love that left and how it tore you apart. It'll remind you of when you fall in love with your best friend and there's nothing you can do about it. It'll remind you of so many different things like that in such a real way. Uh, and just leave a place in your heart. It really will. Leave a little black place in your heart. <laughs> and, yeah, in mine, anyway. Yeah. Uh, I love this movie to pieces. It is not for everyone. It's a very indie type of film. You know, it's very, like I said, it's very naturalistic, but it's absolutely beautiful. It's one of the best soundtracks of almost anything. The two, if you like that, the two leads went on to form a band called The Swell Season, where they've continued to perform together and do new new music that's, that's really terrific. But this is the first Blu-ray release of it. It's basically just an exact transfer of the previous DVD that came out, just slightly higher quality but nonetheless if you've never checked out once and if you consider yourself you know really a music fan that has any sort of liking for folk music at all modern folk then this is something you absolutely should have seen by now right on well moving on to another film that uh represents the early days of our film reviews here on oneofus.net the nut job 
Another one I didn't go see in the theater, but now I've seen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I'm I'm with you on in that situation. Boy, howdy, the nut job! Didn't this sound like it should have been really good? I, I was like, you know what, I you know what movie I really liked that I, I don't feel like gets a lot of credit is Over the Hedge. Like I enjoyed oh, Over I the love Hedge. That movie, yeah. yeah, it was a good time. I was like, well, if this is like half as good as Over the Hedge, you know, I should still have fun with it. It's not half as good as Over the no, Hedge. No, 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 no. <laughs> It's the you know this film is almost worse due to its own mediocrity. Yeah, it's not. I mean, I've seen animated films that are point blank painful to watch and sit through. There's one one about aliens like about two years ago. I remember that was so bad. I was like, Planet Fifty. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, this is so bad. I don't know if I can get all the way through this. This isn't one of those movies, but it's just embarrassing that the animation is quite good. There's obviously real money involved with this thing. Uh, they've got a lot of good voice people. And yet, and they've got a great premise. It's a terrific premise. It's just never funny. It never goes anywhere interesting. No one really tried with writing this thing. Yeah, and there's a lot of weird internal consistency problems. Yeah. Like, there's this scene, for example, okay, so the basic story is that you have this uh, this collective of animals living in the park that are, are trying to gather food for the winter, and they're led by this old raccoon voiced by Liam Neeson. As, uh, as you are. Uh, yeah, like because if you're going to have an old raccoon character, it's, of course, Liam Neeson. Or Ice Cube. Or Ice Cube, yeah. <laughs> um, so they're getting, but at the same time, there's this rogue squirrel who's really out for himself, and he's sort of like a master thief kind of a, of a character, and he's always trying to steal nuts because he's a damn squirrel. Will Arnett. Will Arnett voices him. So it comes down to a situation where they they run afoul of each other. They're they basically have two different agendas that uh you know the the thieving squirrel uh Surly, voiced by Will Arnett, ends up doing something that kind of puts the rest of the park in jeopardy, so he gets exiled, and you know, he's he's come across this huge score if he can figure out how to get these nuts out of this building, blah blah blah. But okay, so at one point, here's here's an example of the weird internal consistency things that are really easy to fix if you just don't fucking do them. This is not a, like oh we forgot to animate this or do. It's like no, you added something that makes no sense. So he's besieged when he first gets there by these like gnarly, almost uh, feral rats. Yeah, and it's like they're just monsters. They don't say anything as they're attacking him. They're just kind of they really are just monsters. And then when he gets away from them. As the rats are running away, you hear one of them go, let's go tell the boss. And it's like... And that was the only thing they say, like, in the whole movie. And it's like, why did you give them any lines at all? They don't, like, they don't speak. Yeah. Why Why do they suddenly in ADR have the... It's like, oh, wait, you know what we have to do? We have to draw a connection later to why this character is there. So we'll have these rats who don't talk, still not talk, but we'll just add in a voiceover of someone going, let's go tell the boss. Suddenly these monsters are Brooklyn gangsters. Like, I don't understand it. Yeah, it's it was awkward in the film. There's lots of little moments like that that don't really work at all. And there's a lot of unnecessary characters who don't need to be in this thing whatsoever. Yeah. Um, it's way too many people they try and shove in this thing, and it just gets uncomfortably crowded really quick. But like I said, the worst thing, you got Will Arnett, who is a really funny guy. In- and he is given his best, but the script... They give him no real jokes. Yeah, they give him no real jokes. It's just so bland. And they try to have a love interest with him and another squirrel in there, uh, who, uh, played voice by Catherine Heigl, which right there you should know. <laughs> this movie's gonna probably suck. Yeah, cause <laughs> if there's anything that works every single time, it's Catherine Heigl in a romantic role. Yeah. Oh shit. Uh, Maya Rudolph actually has a nice little role as the voice of a pug, uh, Lucky, that that does work where he doesn't have a voice world and suddenly does. I thought that worked because that was kind of the joke in and of itself. Yeah. But 
a lot of this, it's just, you're like, really, you you couldn't call Patton Oswalt to come in and do a punch-up on this thing? Yes. Yeah, so, somebody... It seems like a script that's allergic to jokes. Like, yeah. they're afraid to make jokes. I couldn't understand it. But yeah, it's, it's a shame because it's nice looking. It genuinely is a nice looking movie. It's there's clearly money involved, but there's no funny involved. There's money, but no funny involved. <laughs> exactly. Hey, and about fourteen different nut jokes because yeah, well, you know, there's even jokes. a inappropriate how many nuts can you fit in your mouth type of joke yeah. in here at one point. I was like, really? Are you sure that's a joke that goes to adults get but children don't? Because I'm pretty sure children would get that and go, Why yeah, don't you want to put the nuts in? Them? That's playground bullshit. Um, yeah. The, it's a shame, too, because there's on extras, there's stuff on here that you would hope to see on good animated films, like two uh, short animated shorts uh, that were made before this to kind of get money for it that are both, I thought, funnier than the movie itself. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of cool when you have that one is like very previs quality and the other is like fully rendered and everything. It was it was I guess I get the impression it maybe it was shown before something else from this company as a sort of like coming soon type of deal. But, uh, I mean, that alone is kind of worth, worth checking this out at the very least for, or at least I, I would hope that it would inspire other people to include those sort of things on their animated film extras. I mean, you know, the saddest thing in here is the raccoon has this little never speaks cardinal buddy. Who's like this enforcer looking bird is totally scary. And that should have been like, that should have worked its way into a good joke at some point, but it never does. No. It's like, you guys have all this stuff that is, has the potential to expand and to be genuinely funny and cool, and you just, you just didn't try. Not everyone can be Lord and Miller, as it turns out. No, no. In fact, most people can't be Lord and Miller. <laughs> well, the nut job. Nuts to that. We're gonna move on to Ripper Street, season two. Ah, the BBC. How I love you. We're moving on to Ripper Street. We're gonna talk season two. Is that a song? It is now. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you, now, you guys who are a Game of Thrones fan, you might want to check this out, because Jerome Flynn, uh, who plays Braun in HBO, he's one of the primary characters in Ripper Street, and he's actually my easily my favorite character on Ripper Street. In fact, I'm pretty sure even the creators, he's their favorite character, because this season... He's one of my favorites on Game of Thrones. So. Uh, on this season, they really give him some... Like, like the, the main arc is his. He gets to act his ass off. He's incredible. The only super interesting character-based stuff in here that happens is the stuff that's based around his story and sure enough in the season two of the series which takes place right uh, basically after they didn't catch the ripper and he wasn't killing anymore but now everyone's terrified in Whitechapel that there's going to be another killer or he's right. not done uh and the, the detective force in Whitechapel trying to calm down everybody uh everybody gets their own character arc the rest just aren't that interesting and season one was a lot more had a lot more of a sort of like like you still weren't sure the ripper wasn't coming back you still thought is this going to be a show about finding out who the Ripper was, making their own theory. And, you know, it even, like, season one ends with a sort of, like, thinking one of the characters, the the American guy who was a former Pinkerton, they're like, oh, maybe he was the Ripper. And, of course, turns out he wasn't. Uh, <laughs> season two goes to a good bit later after that, where they've kind of changed the format a bit, where it's much more police procedural now. You know, every episode is very much like a, here's the crime, here are the cops figuring it out. Here's them deciphering the clues. Here's them finally coming in upon the murderer or robber or what have you uh -huh. with little bits here and there further developing each character's stories. Um, and that stuff can be cool. It's just that it's so determined to say something about the world we live in today, about with every single one of these things, that it takes you right out 
of the world that they're actually in. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like they're just determined to say like, oh, now we're going to say something about like prejudice against gay people because we're going to show something like something with that, you know? I mean, that sort of thing. You're like, okay, I know that stuff was around, but it's like when every episode you can – like they almost turn to the screen and wink and say – Know what I mean? Oh, Lord. Uh, it's a little, it's a little much. I don't mind dealing with problems that were more unique to that period of time. That mm-hmm. would be okay with me. And it certainly gets bloody and nasty and, and fun when it needs to, but it's not till the end of season two that things really start moving. And uh, that's really with a interesting, uh, with the very interesting, uh, cult episode, like getting someone out of a cult episode that really breaks up the structure of all the characters and how they think things are, as one of them is revealed to be still tied into this terrible cult, and the Golden Dawn Society, which of course later became something that Aleister Crowley turned into the modern-day Church of Satanism, yada, yada, yada. Uh, it's actually pretty fucking cool and nice. really, really bloody and nasty, but there's a lot of this is really a, what makes this cool is when is the cool cameos, if you will, by famous people from that time. None of which is better than John Merrick, who's in the first two episodes. That's the Elephant, elephant Man. Elephant Man, yeah. Yeah, who's good friends with the lead character, the lead detective, wow. and ends up being involved with something. And, and they, you know, it's one of those retcons of his story where we know how he died in real life, but this retcons it so that he was murdered by somebody in the midst of a case. Damn. Although, who made it look like he, he died naturally, as it were. And this, like, I guess the season, this series is best at pathos, but it's not always good at making the stories seem terribly plausible. I'm kind of in the middle about this. I like all the performances a lot. I think the production design is top notch. Uh, I just, they need to work more on the arcs of the, these stories. Um, there's one guy who's the main bad guy, who's a sort of the, the head of the police from the next district over, who is basically the guy from Gang of, Gangs of New York that Daniel Day Lewis played. Oh, Bill the Butcher. Yeah, he's not, but they did <laughs> everything they could to make you think he's Bill the Butcher. Huh. It's like wrong period of time, wrong place, but, <laughs> but he's Bill the Butcher and he's kind of the main villain. Uh, and it, I, I would have been pissed if I was a fan of the show in Britain and it ends the way it does on a cliffhanger, basically, because, uh, that involves him because they were saying, well, sorry, we're canceling the show. But apparently now Amazon Prime has picked it up and said, no, no, we're going to start doing new episodes of it. Wow. Yeah. It's a good show that should be a lot better than it is. And I'm hoping that maybe moving to Amazon Prime with some new people overlooking it will give it the punch it needs to kind of elevate it to, to where it really should be. Nice. No, I'll have to check this out. This sounds great. Like I said, right now it's okay. It's sometimes really good. I mean, it's only eight episodes, so you can get through it quick. But um, it, it should be a lot better than it is. But like, like I said, if you like that one actor from Game of Thrones, he's the real showstopper here. He's amazing in this. Nice. Well, moving on from Ripper Street to Philomena, which is very similar in content if oh, you think about it. Steve Coogan was Jack the Ripper. I don't think people totally. know that. He's, uh, I was going to say Judy Dench was, but that's you know, you know, everyone has their own theory. They did it together. They're both <laughs> they're both immortals. Just Judy started later. <laughs> No, Philomena is actually a drama based on a real-life case of a woman who uh, grew up in a uh, in an abbey, in a, basically in a like a convent, and she got pregnant, and her child was given away while she was basically an indentured servant at this convent. And so the story follows a somewhat downtrodden, disgraced reporter who has uh, now found himself doing human interest stories, which to him is like a four-letter word. 
uh, but he's kind of reduced to doing for uh, human interest stories. And he meets up with uh, Judy Dench's character Philomena as she's trying to find her son. And the whole movie is about kind of the interesting discoveries that they make along the way. And uh, I got to say, I really dug this movie. Yeah, it's a movie listening to on the outside. It sounded like it was going to be one of those British films that you're like, okay, I'll probably like this okay or respect it at the very least, but not come away from it finding it very forgetful. At the very at, at the very least, it's not a movie I expected to be entertained by. And it is. It's very entertaining. And not in the way that Steve Coogan films usually are entertaining. I mean, he's no. not playing Alan Partridge here. He is – these are all very real – Characters. He's very blue collar. Yeah, exactly. And the watching, you know, he's very cynical about all this. He doesn't want to do human interest stories, really. But as he goes along, he really finds his his heart breaking for this woman and for the story. And so will you, but not in a sort of beat you over the head with it sort of way either. She is, Philomena is just charming and she's yeah. over it as far as all the fucking shit that was done to her. Like yeah. she is not really holding on to a lot of that pain. She just wants to know what happened to her kid. Yeah. It's, it's, I think that's what keeps this from feeling like it's browbeating you with its message is that Judy Dench's character is, is just so full of grace and, and forgiveness. Yeah. And the woman who should be, like, completely outraged and, and freaking out this entire time. Just and, and angry her whole life. No, she's just very even keel, and she's so funny. What's like, fun? yeah, she can deliver a turn of phrase, or she can, like, and, and she's, it's effortless. Like, she'll just be having a conversation with someone and not really understand, like, why what she's saying is, is a little bit outrageous, and she'll just say it, and it's, yeah. it's adorable. And she's, like, it's not even like she's a, supposed to be super bright or anything. It's kind of one of those out-of-the-mouths, from-out-of-the-mouths-of-babes type of situations. Yes. But I like the way that, like, Coogan, who comes in here all like, I'm the know-it-all, I'm the guy, I'm going to find this out, aren't you outraged? He's the one getting more and more angry because he's got his own anger from his own shit. And he's just kind of trans, you know, he's experiencing transference in the situation. And she's the one who's giving him a reason to be happy, you know, as he's finding her grace and admiring her for who she is as he's supposedly the one who's supposed to be helping her. Yeah. <laughs> um, no. And really it's, it's just such a great road movie it ends up being between – you know, with the two of them on this quest. And we get a, a few – I like the way they use flashback too because it's not overbearing. Yeah. It's it's not something that happens so often that it detracts from the story at hand, which I think is, is far more interesting. And I like I like the arc of Coogan's character almost as much as I like the arc of, of Judy Dench's character. And that's something else because like, I'm not the world's biggest Steve Coogan fan. Um, no, me neither. I can't quite get the Steve Coogan fanaticism that people have. The whole Alan Partridge thing, I'm like – I don't really get it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm glad you guys like it, but it just doesn't. It's not usually for me, but I got to tell you, he is, he is great in this movie and he find the way he finds his heart and like getting indignant on her behalf. It's not, it's not because he's an asshole. It's literally because he is, it's, it's like they found the tin man's heart kind of a situation where it's like he was a journalist and he was very career oriented, but man, this story you can tell is really affecting him from, from about the first discovery that they make. So I, yeah, I really, really liked this movie and I did not expect to at all. Yeah. I mean, the only reason I really would have ever checked this out is initially was because it was getting nominated for a bunch of awards and they were sent, they sent us the screener early on and I kept reading from people. No, seriously, check this out. It really is a lot of fun. It just, like I said, from the description, from like just watching the trailer and everything, I was like, uh, we didn't listen. Not my kind of thing, I guess. We didn't listen. But really, this is going to end up being almost anybody's thing. You really should give this movie a shot. And uh, I mean, it's 
it is memorable and it is funny and it's a movie you can watch with your parents too. Uh, it comes with an audio commentary by Steve Coogan, which is usually pretty good in the screen screenwriter, a conversation with Judy Dench, where she actually talks about her whole acting career, including her roles in the James Bond films, which I would think alone would be worth it. It's just a shame. It's only nine minutes long. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a interview with the real Philomena from real life. And then there's a Q and a with Steve Coogan. If I have a complaint about this release, honestly, it's that I wanted something more about the real filming. Yeah, I would like to see a full documentary about it, but there's, you know, there is that, uh, God, I'm forgetting the name of it. There's a movie. It's not documentary, although there probably somebody has made one that's about that period of time. And I, it may even about the same convent, uh, in England where, uh, girls were in there and they were forced to have their children taken away, taken away from them and stuff. Yeah. I cannot remember the name of it, but it won a bunch of awards when it initially came out like eight years ago or something. Huh. Um, yeah, this is a thing that in the past decade has become a ugly scar on the face of the church over there where they're like more and more stuff keeps getting coming up with like the really shitty stuff the nuns were doing. Yeah. It's like something anyone who ever watched exploitation films in the 60s and 70s already knew. Dude, first of all, are you actually <laughs> going to sit there and tell me that the Catholic Church has skeletons in its closet, Chris? Really? Come on. Come on. That's no. bullshit. The deuce you say. Well, even, you know, even the more. The deus you even, say. Right. Even more than we thought. <laughs> yeah, that's it's not going to give you the greatest of, of opinions on on uh, Catholic churches around the world, but it is a really sweet story. Has a couple of great performances and a great uh, chemistry between Judy Dench and Steve Coogan. So yep. I recommend it. They totally should have hooked up, though. Uh, yes, yes, they should have. May December romance at the end. That would have been hot. A little uh, little Harold and Maude situation. I totally do Judy Judy Dench. I'm just saying. Did you just said it? All right, there is nothing we can do about it. Uh, we're gonna move on to date and switch. What the hell is this? Uh, date and switch is the attempt to take the standard two best friends about to graduate from high school, make a pact to lose their virginity, and and throw a wrench into the works by when one of the friends admits to the other. Uh, by the way, I'm totally gay. I'm sorry, I, I fell asleep when you said, you know, high school kids making a pact to lose their virginity by graduate. Yeah, well, we've seen quite a few of those. Uh, and certainly this is something we haven't seen before. And it's one of those where, like, you know, anybody would have been surprised when the friend turned out to be gay. You're like, wait, what? Seriously? <laughs> it's like, you don't, there's like, you are the least gay guy I've ever met in my life. A Hunter Cope plays the friend who's like a proto-Kevin Smith, you know, walking, wearing... Geeky t-shirts and the, the over button up flannel shirt on top of it. So by proto Kevin Smith, you mean good Kevin Smith. Yeah. Gets okay. high all the time. Yeah. You know, that kind of guy. <laughs> Very funny. Yeah. Uh, so old Kevin Smith. Whereas, uh, Nicholas Braun, who, who was actually, uh, uh, what was the other movie he was in? He was in something that was really, he was in Sky High. Oh, yeah. Um, I like Sky High. Red State. Speaking of Kevin Smith, mm -hmm. the perks of being a wallflower. He okay. played Derek. Uh, he's in the new Poltergeist remake coming out, which will probably be terrible. <laughs> uh, he's the, the friend. And the idea is like when he comes out, he's like, oh, um, wow. All right. And immediately, you know, I mean, he's a liberal area, liberal guy. He's like, okay, no, that's fine. I just give me a little bit to adjust to the idea. And, and uh, now that I've, you know, after I've been convinced and I'll try and do, I will go way overboard to show you I'm supportive. Like, let's go out to gay bars and dance in, like, a place with a giant foam machine and things like that. And you're like, okay, dude, this guy isn't really that kind of gay guy. 
<laughs> you know, not all gay guys like, girl, what are you doing? Oh my God. Yeah. You know, he's really, he's like, look, I like, I like men. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, and this should work. It doesn't help that Nick Offerman is playing the exact opposite of the role you should offer Nick Offerman, which is as a ridiculously supportive and liberal dad. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the most understanding and soft-spoken dad imaginable. You're like, did you really mean to cast Nick Offerman for that part? I mean, maybe he's trying to break out of his standard roles, but um, that's just weird. Uh, Whereas, uh, you know, the gay guy's dad is Gary Cole. Who's like kind of like, yeah, son, you're going to go out and get some girls pregnant right on, which seems much more appropriate. Sure. And casting. It's just, there's funny parts here and there, but ultimately you get so pissed at, at Nicholas Braun's character, the straight guy, Michael, because he's just, he's such a blithering idiot with this whole stuff. And he ends up, of course, getting pissed off about stuff that's just so retarded to get pissed off about. I just... There's uh, so many sort of misunderstandings that that blow up into something out of nowhere. And I know this is high school. That kind of shit really happens. But it was hard to have fun watching it with all this. I mean, uh, Michael is just so full of himself. He's such a little asshole. And they never really give you much to like about the guy. And for some reason, this movie's from his viewpoint instead of from the gay guy's viewpoint. So I don't know. It's it's a good try, but it never quite gets there. This is one of those... uh things where Lionsgate has been creating micro budgeted features lately and, you know, using like, okay, we, we have some amount of, uh, you know, taking talent, talented screenwriter and director teams going, you haven't proven yourself, but we have some confidence. You have enough talent to do something, you know, that might make us some money yeah. <laughs> and give them like, you know, $2 million to make a movie or whatever. This is like one of those of that series. And no, it doesn't quite work, but there's so many people here who show a lot of promise, including the writer and director, that you, I have a feeling years later, looking back, we'll probably see some good stuff coming from them and go on this. Yeah, it was a stunted first effort, but we could tell that better things were probably going to come. Right on. Yeah. Well, from there, we're going to talk about double in dim 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 Can I just go ahead and say, and say uh, this, along with a pick that I think the Parallel Universe guys did this week, are my double pick of the week. Double pick of the week! Yeah, which is because they're both released at the same time under the same, you know, label. They both have this sort of gold-rimmed boxes, this and, and Touch of Evil. Uh, and they are both two of the greatest film noir films ever made. And it's appropriate, too, because Double Indemnity is thought by many to really in some ways be the first definitive film noir. I mean, it's so many of the tropes that we all, we associate with film noir, period, got their start in Double Indemnity. Uh, and it's widely looking back, looked back at as being, you know, one of the top five ever made. Whereas Touch of Evil is really in some ways a sort of goodbye to, to film noir in its own way. It's, it takes a lot of the things about it and it's like all the stuff that's in a normal film noir movie are stuff that we didn't get to see that happened to Orson Welles' character before his character evolved to where he is, you know, the sort of the making of a man towards evil that was a good man. Here though, uh, written, directed by Billy, the great Billy Wilder, one of the greatest American filmmakers ever, or he's not even American, but he was working in America, to be fair. Greatest filmmakers. There you go. <laughs> Co-written by him and, and Raymond Chandler. One you of the, might have heard of Raymond Chandler. One of the greatest mystery novels of all time. Actually, one of the extras on here has a whole thing about how much they hated each other, <laughs> which is a lot of fun. <laughs> like, just there are all these notes, like, would you tell that son of a bitch to stop wearing his hat when we're working? Stuff like that. You're like, really? Okay. 
<laughs> Fuck your hat. Um, it's based on a, a novella by James M. Kane, who was a very popular writer at the time. Uh, and it's one of those films that there was a lot of struggle to get made. You know, everybody was very unsure about this. Nobody necessarily wanted to be cast in it because at this point, playing roles that were this evil and like, you know, everybody in this film except for Edwin G. Robinson is a bad person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, just despicable all around. Yeah. And, um, like they got Fred McMurray, who was known before. Before and after for pretty much just like family and romantic comedy. That, that's always what what flabbergasts me about this movie is people that haven't seen it. Uh, flabbergasts me. <laughs> uh, is, you know, people that know Fred McMurray who haven't seen this movie know him from like My Three Sons and The Absent-Minded Professor. Just like very, you know, sweet and sugary roles for the whole family. And then in this movie, man, he is just... A complete miscreant. Even before he gets, like, wrapped up with the femme fatale. Yeah, he's like, oh, check out this girl. She's married. I'm a fucking hit on her like nobody's been. I'm a hit on her like a frat boy who's been roofied himself. And he breezes into any room like Bogey and is just, like, charming. And he's just kind of dripping with this, like... Raymond Chandler dialogue. Yes, Raymond Chandler dialogue. <laughs> and then he's just dropping, like, bombs everywhere. It's so good. Yeah, he plays an insurance salesman. Perfectly cast for the time because what... Wilder wanted to show was there's evil in ordinary people. You know, there's, they don't all look like have scars down their face and stuff. Like this guy's an insurance salesman. He looks, he looks like Fred McMurray. You know, right. he's like, looks like the most least harmful guy imaginable. And yet he's filled with villainy. Uh, he, where right from the beginning we see he's horribly wounded and he's speaking in a dictaphone, talking to his friend, uh, Barton Keyes, played by the great Edwin G. Robinson. Meh, uh, meh, see? Um, and admitting, doing a full confession to everything that happened. So the whole movie is really a flashback where he's met, uh, Phyllis Dietrichson, played by Barbara Stanwyck, to do a routine house, house call. Barbara Stanwyck, the first lady of film noir, oh, by yeah, the way. Completely. And who's just gorgeous here. Uh, they flirt. He's there just to remind her husband that their automobile insurance policy is up for renewal, but she starts insinuating that she wants accident insurance and he immediately is like, uh-huh, accident insurance. What do you think? I just walk in here. He's like, hey, let me help you kill your husband. What kind of idiot do you think I am? Well, he's that kind of idiot because almost <laughs> immediately, it's not long before they're sleeping together and uh, they've hatched a plan to kill her husband and m get her all the insurance money. And not even that, like to like double down on it with a double indemnity, which means you pick one particular way that they would die and you get double the payback, which is put in claims, as the movie says, for suckers, basically, because how often does that actually happen? It's like, it is the most Vegas that insurance ever gets. It's like, all right, put your money down. How are you going to die? How are you going to die? Hey, oh, hey, oh. Uh, they bet he's going to die in a train accident, which is one of those that looks a little suspicious, admittedly, when two weeks later he dies in a train accident. <laughs> I think that's why double, double indemnity exists, is because if you're actually right, it was probably murder. Yeah. Like, it's just an easy tool for the police to be like, oh, really? You, you hit it exactly? Yeah, that's murder. Arrest everyone. Well, this whole thing is so nerve-wracking to watch it play out. I mean, we know from the beginning, literally the very beginning, that he killed this guy with her and that he's going to get shot and that he didn't get away with it. There's this great line. It's like, I did it for the money and I did it for the woman. And I didn't get the money or the woman. <laughs> right from the beginning. And you're no, like, I kind of fucked up. You're like, damn, let's hear this guy's story. <laughs> uh, and, and it seems like actually a pretty damn good plan. It really does, you know? And if anything, the worst thing you can say about this is only that it seems dated now because every other film noir that's made since has ripped it off like crazy. Like down to the plot. 
has ripped it off like crazy. There's so many elements here. You're like, oh, that's in all of them. You're like, yeah, because this movie did it first and yeah. did it really well. Man, the lighting in this film, you just have to hand it off to the cinematographer alone. I mean, at this point, you did not have darkly lit scenes and experiment with characters in shadow, talking to characters in light. And there's just so much going on here with that that's just kind of mind-blowing, really, what they do with it. Um, this guy, what's his name? It's John F. Seitz. Just reinvented what cinema was capable, black and white cinema was capable of. And this was at a point that films were starting to come out mainly in color. So it was, it was pretty startling to happen at that period of time. It, this is a masterpiece, no question about it. Absolutely it is. And this is one of those films that's every bit as enjoyable uh, you know, watching today as, as it was, you know, there's, it, it hasn't lost anything in the aging process. I feel like it's every bit as effective now as it would have been in the forties. And yeah, I, I love the hell out of this movie. Oh, there's so much to love and they treat it right. It looks so beautiful. This is a great Blu-ray transfer. I mean, it's just as, it's as perfect as you can get a film this old. There's an introduction from TCM, uh, where they talk about it briefly. There's a, uh, about a, 40, almost 40 minute documentary that gives a history of the production, critical evaluation, uh, trailers, commentary with the film historians, uh, memorabilia, which are lobby cards that include pictures from the alternate ending, the original ending they filmed that audiences didn't like. So they cut where the character, main character goes to the gas chamber and dies right in front of his best friend, which audiences were like, yeah, that's, wow, a that's little, pretty, that's, that's pretty a, hardcore. That's a little too much punishment. <laughs> <laughs> they show brief clips of what little tiny bit exists of it in the, the documentary. But the weirdest add on in here is an entire other version of this movie made in 1973 with Richard Crenna playing the lead role made for television. Uh, Lee J Cobb as keys and Samantha e Egger in uh the Marlene, D or not Marlene Dietrich, uh, uh, the, as uh, Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah, Barbara St Stanwyck role. Like, mediocre ABC TV movie. Why would you remake Double Indemnity at all, much less for television? But <laughs> it kind of serves as an, uh, it, it serves as that much more of an argument for why the original film is as good in every way that it is. Yeah. It's, it's one of those films that you kind of have to see in order to understand an entire era of filmmaking. And yeah. Absolutely love it. Glad that there's a new version out. From there, we're going to talk about Mobius. Oh, man, I love French comic books. Right? What? No. I was going to say I love house music from the 90s, but, you I don't know, know what that is. It's a Moby joke. <laughs> oh, well, actually, there's a guy named Mobius who's who's a very famous French uh, comic book writer and artist. Oh, okay. Who, who did the designs on The Fifth Element, amongst other movies. But, um, no, Mobius has nothing to do with that. Mobius is a Russian-French film with a lot of English in it as well. There's a lot of languages flying around here. It's like the International House of Subtitles. It really is. That is a star piece for Jean Dujardin, which is the main reason I was interested in, because ever since The Artist, I've been like, man, that guy's awesome. And uh, Cécile de France, who is, a, I guess she's like probably in her late 30s, maybe early 40s actress, but... She is actually, yeah, she's 38. She's a Belgian actress. She's been, she was in Halt Tension and Hereafter. She's this beautiful woman who I felt like hasn't really gotten since Halt Tension as good a role as she deserves. And this is a great role for her. If only the movie wasn't completely confusing as fuck. I am so glad to hear that. I thought maybe I was just. I don't know. I don't know what. But I watched this movie twice. Did you really? Because and the first time, I will admit, the first time I watched it, I was also doing some work. 
And it, it just, it like, it did not compute because there are so many different languages, lots of stuff. That I was like, okay, well, obviously I just didn't pay enough attention. The second time I watched it, I sat there and, and tracked everything and I was like, I still don't quite fucking understand what's going on here. The strength of this film is that chemistry between Jean Dujardin and Cécile de France, which is white hot. They are so great on screen together. And the scenes where they're trying, they're together and they're trying not to get caught by people from, I don't even know how many agents. I still, I don't know how many people were trying to track them. I have no clue. But they're trying not to get caught. Those scenes are really good. They're really tense. But even so, uh, yeah, the plot, okay, so... Jean Dujardin is a spy from the FSB, which is basically what the KGB used to be, and now they're the FSB, uh, who ends up falling in love with Cecile de France, who is a traitor, who, not traitor, trade, like, stock trader type thing, who's in, who is somebody, I think it's the CIA, I'm not sure, are setting her up to get, like, to work with Tim Roth, who's a Russian, guy running an international bank for illegal trading of some kind. And I don't fucking know. Everybody's against everybody though. And nobody is allowed to find out that John Dujardin and Cecile de France are fucking. That's the rule. That's the, all you need to remember to get some degree of enjoyment about it. That is a no, no. <laughs> They're going to fuck anyway, Yeah. but nobody can know. That's the only degree in which you can enjoy this film. Cause everything else was just, just kind of a, like, I mean, just so convoluted. You're like, what point did any of this serve? Yeah. No, I, I was I was trying to figure out what everybody wanted. I was like, what is the objective? Yeah. And it's like it seems like it was a financial crimes like motivation, but things got way too like severe and dark for it to just be motivated by like maybe some illicit bond trading. I was like, this is fucking ridiculous. Like yeah. people are going like all kung fu murderer in elevators over some illicit bonds? Are you kidding me? Yeah. It's it's uh, a lot much and I, I, or maybe it's not. I don't know. Maybe there's just like sequel. Maybe I just don't speak the language, as it were, and don't understand the nuances. There's a nuance I'm missing here. But even multiple review sites I went and checked out afterwards were like saying the exact same thing as me. Oh, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck happened in this movie. Well, <laughs> well, like I said, if you can just follow this based on like the connection those the two leads have, which is genuinely good. It's there's something to get out of this. There's enough to enjoy, and it has that feeling of a movie that's a few exposition scenes away from being a pretty interesting spy thriller. Uh-huh. But as it is, it's I don't know if it was like in the editing room something went terribly wrong. But yeah, if I the least I need to ask from a film like this, a spy thriller, is that I know who the good and bad guys are. <laughs> and yeah, I don't have a clue. Yeah, I could yeah. not like, and in, in fact, they go so far as to. Cast a guy who kind of looks like Jean Dujardin, but with a beard, to play a completely different character. Yeah. And I kept thinking they were doing a time jump to a different... I was like, wait, what? And then the ending, which is really like, wait, seriously? Yeah. It has this, like, the only... You just fucked up the only good thing this movie had going. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, whoa, just a weird, weird decision of the way to end this movie. Yeah, it's a, it's a big mess. Maybe someday, this is one of those movies that you hope Soderbergh in his, his doddering years will say, you know, that was almost a good movie. Maybe I'll remake it and make it decent. And yeah. then it will be decent. But yeah. for now, I'd say skip Mobius. Yeah, I, w- I would, I would skip Mobius. And again, take this from somebody who watched it twice and still can't fucking figure out what the hell is going on. <laughs> Anyway, from Mobius, we're going to talk about Stan Lee's Mighty Seven. Oh, I know you folks have been waiting to hear about this, because, hey, I'm Stan the Man. Welcome, true believers. Welcome, true believers, to my newest project. I'm going to try and get money out of your wallets without you noticing. (laughs) 
I'm doing it because the fairy that lives in my head told me to. Excelsior. <laughs> Her name is Steve. <laughs> he uh, comes from a distant planet. All I can think is, like, Stanley. All right, so, full credit, Stanley, you're the man. You created some of the most memorable and incredible characters in the history of comics ever. Uh, you know, I mean, outside of Batman, I think you pretty much got DC beat across the board for, for my tastes. The just tons of people that you made. Your, your history is, it's unassailable. That being said, you are old as fuck. And I don't think you really know what's going on anymore, or you wouldn't have produced shows like Stripperella or Stan Lee's Mighty Seven. Yeah. Which is the most, the biggest self-ego stroke. I mean, people say films are masturbatory. This is the most masturbatory thing I have ever seen in my life, as that Stan Lee, who is writing and publishing this and I'm totally behind this thing happening, plays himself as the leader of a super team of aliens. <laughs> which... As masturbatory as it is, I really think they let, like, you know, it's obvious they gave Stan Lee carte blanche because he's, again, the leader of a team of superheroes. Yeah. But maybe a little too much because I think his senility is starting to leak into the writing because in the, in this show, it is established that he is looking for a way to break into the comic book industry even as he is somehow a comic book maven. Well, they or do. A maverick. They do. They kind of put him where he is now, which is like, I used to be big, now I'm not. I need to get back in the game. But he talks about, like, trying to sell ideas to Archie Comics, which is how Stan Lee apparently got started. But at the same time, so he's, like, that doesn't work out. So he's coming up, he needs a new idea to sell to comic book companies. But at the same, like, I'm like, okay, wait, 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 wait. But, but you've already invented the Hulk and Iron Man and Spider-Man, but now you can't, you're trying to break in now. I'm confused. But ironically, that's true. This is Archie Comics published. There's a series of comics that go with it. This is Archie Comics. He sold this idea to Archie. That's all true. But I thought the whole point He was, doesn't work for Marvel anymore, except as a guy they pay to do oh big Oh, God. I, I'm just... I'm done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can't follow this. It's, well, he, I can't remember the details, but he left Marvel some t years ago, so he hasn't worked for them for a long time and has been trying to start up his own thing. And the point is, he just doesn't have it anymore. You know? Yeah. It happens. I mean, look at John Carpenter. Love him, respect oh, him, man. but man, you just ain't got it anymore. Look at John Carpenter, but don't look at his movies after In the Mouth of Madness. It just something happened where it's just like, I don't know if it's because the times changed and they didn't. This is what this feels like more than anything. The times changed and Stan Lee didn't. And he's still, he's bought into his own press and it just comes off as just that. As masturbatory, as the heroes being just ripoffs of other heroes we've seen before. There's nothing really special or new in the story of these aliens that he sort of manages into being a super team and saving the Earth from some other evil alien it's just it just is what it is i mean like even the cast screams well we did with the best we could with the little money army hammer plays the lead superhero guy strong arm which army hammer almost had a real career and then he made lone ranger and sorry army you better get used to this sort of work uh mayim bialik plays lady Lightning. i owe street cred away <laughs> mayim bialik plays lady lightning who has super speed terry hatcher plays silver skylark the Whose super ability is she can fly? I think my dad drove a Silver Skylark at one point. <laughs> Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers plays Roller Man, who rolls up into a big ball and launches at high speed. Darren Chris is Micro, who can shrink in size. Sean Astin, I bet you thought you'd be doing better after Lord of the Rings than this, but sorry, plays Kid Kinergy, who can has telekinesis powers. You've also got Jim Belushi as the leader of a covert operations military division assigned to investigate UFO sightings. And Michael Ironside. Man, Michael Ironside should be like like one of the 
great respected actors. Instead, he's got to do stuff like this because people didn't watch enough great films in the 80s. Uh, who's the Xanar, the leader of the warring aliens from the home planet? Whatever. Who cares? Point is, they got a bunch of C-list actors for a D-list script that is there to give Stan Lee some work because nobody wants the guy to starve. I don't either. Let's just politely say, okay, Stan, good job. How does he not have a few dollars tucked away from his empire? I don't know. I'm sure he does, but still, you don't want to, like, say, Stan, I'm sorry, you can't work anymore. Stan Lee. So we all just politely go, all right, Stan, that's nice. I actually found this cartoon to be every bit as entertaining as Ang Lee's Hulk. (laughs) I liked Ang Lee's Hulk better. Wow. A lot better. (laughs) So there you have it, folks. I don't really like Ang Lee's Hulk, so... Yeah, this is just embarrassing. And the animation is terrible. Yeah, it's not good. Like, oh, it's real God. herky-jerk. Yeah. Like, you have a helicopter who's, that's trying to fly in, but it looks like it's just being, like, progressively re, uh, replaced by a smaller and smaller image. So it's like, it's landing. And it's like, really? Because I could have done this myself. Yeah, it's really poor animation. Like, like they're borrowing both from more traditional American styles and anime, but only in as so much as they don't have to spend that much money. <laughs> and the extra features are mainly just more stuff about Stan Lee. You know, there's a series of rants by Stan Lee. There's a uh, trailer for more stuff by him. There's a trivia game about Stan Lee. It's like, come on, man. A trivia game about Stan Lee? Seriously. I mean, literally asking, going, what college did Stan Lee go to, Drew Believer? It's like, who gives a fuck? (laughs) (laughs) What is my favorite strain of Uh, marijuana? uh, (laughs) Right? What mayonnaise brand do I prefer? I don't care. Stan, <laughs> we love you for what you did, but maybe now it's time to sit around with some of your friends of your own age and play Chinese checkers and go quietly into that good night. Yes. <laughs> in, in, until Chinese checker becomes a character in some terrible comic down the road. I don't mean die. I just mean enjoy your retirement. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Get out before at, you continue to embarrass yourself. cons yourself. and let everybody kiss your ass there. I'll, <laughs> I'll be first in line to kiss yes. your ass. You stop, deserve it. Sh- stop shitting the bed before you're at an age where you're shitting in a bag. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Oh, dude. We're going to get a lot of hate mail. We are. This. We are. And I'm sorry. Literally. I Dear love- assholes at Digital Noise. <laughs> I heard your episode and take exception to pretty much everything you said. <laughs> Go fuck yourselves, Excelsior. We're just going to respond to every nasty comment. You're Stanley, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Is this Stanley? Fast up, Stan. And then one guy will be like, "I totally agree with everything you said," and I'll be like, "You're Jim Shooter, aren't you?" <laughs> <laughs> all, right, all right, that's enough hatred on that poor guy. That poor old man. Uh, we're going to move on to Better Living Through Chemistry, which I think is a book I had to read once. Oh, it's the title of my college years biography. Yes, no, that's that's true. You did some shit. I did. I've had a few party stories, but we're not here to discuss those. We're here to talk about Sam Rockwell playing a lead role in a movie that, of a whole sort of genre of films of middle class people discovering life isn't as great as they thought it would be that I thought was over by the mid-90s. Yeah, I gotta say, though, I kind of enjoyed this movie. I mean, it's not great by any stretch of the imagination, but it's, you know, I thought it was a fun little story. I mean, Sam Rockwell basically plays this henpecked, uh, kind of nebbish guy who, uh, he marries into this family and the, the, his father-in-law owns a, a pharmacy and he's working there as a pharmacist. And it comes time for the dad to retire and, uh, you know, Sam Rockwell has bought the business from him and yet the, father-in-law refuses to take his name off the building because yeah. so, he's just an asshole. And it just goes to show what a nebbish he really is. He's like, okay. Yeah. I was like, I'd be like, no, fuck you. It's my yeah. place now. And and his wife, played by Michelle Monaghan, is like this 
she's a cyclist. She's a fitness enthusiast, and she's basically the man of the house. Yeah, she's an alpha female if there ever was one. And and she treats him like shit. I mean, everybody in this movie pretty much treats Sam Rockwell like shit. But he is very loyal to his customers. He's a very good guy, and he runs into this woman played by Olivia Wilde, who Which is all you need to say. All you know is what? forgiven at that point. You know what? This is double indemnity. Yeah. This movie's whole structure, I just realized, is double indemnity. Until suddenly it's not, and you're like, no, it's just kind of... Yeah, a, it ne- backs off. The it, movie itself becomes nebbishy. The, the movie pussies <laughs> out the way Sam Rockwell tends to at the beginning of the film, it but does. the structure going along is totally double indemnity, because he runs <laughs> he runs his femme fatale, and they come up with this plan to basically get rid of her husband, because they, they start hooking up and have this like really intense relationship that is aided by all these drugs that they start doing from the pharmacy, and they start having this wild sex and and she really appreciates him and it's something he's never experienced before and they come up with this this thought that maybe he could just accidentally mess up the husband's heart medication and then they would be free of all their obligations so that's kind of the setup which i literally just realized is totally double well, indemnity as well as like you know the thing is like he's like so withdrawn and she's like look why don't you take some of your own medicine you've got access to all this i mean that's how they meet because she comes in with like you know eight bottles of pills a week of stuff she's taken like crazy to deal with her, you know, bored, rich woman whose husband doesn't pay any attention to her life, who's later revealed to be Ray Liotta for no reason at all. What? She's revealed to be Ray Liotta? The, her, her husband. I know. I was just kidding. Oh, sorry. Did I say that wrong? <laughs> um, but there's a lot of fun scenes in the middle here where he's starting to take the pills with her and they're, and he's starting to tell everybody to fuck off. And he becomes the to... Sam Rockwell character we love in most movies. Yeah. Just like this completely wild, almost Hunter S. Thompson he's, type. He's like an exaggerated version of Kevin Spacey in American Beauty once Kevin Spacey says, you know what? Fuck it. I'm tired of this Lawrence Welk shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And just goes, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to tell everybody off. I'm going to do what I want. Screw it. Uh, and th- those sequences are fun to watch. But like I said, I guess the biggest thing that really threw me off is the way, yeah, the film itself pussies out and goes like, nah, we were looking for something a little more milk toast here. I'll give you that. I will totally give you that. Yeah, I was expecting a little bit harder of an, of an edge to the ending. And in that regard, you know, you could perceive it as a failure. I enjoyed it up to that point, though, which is more than I expected to. Like, I really like looking at this cast and looking at the setup. I was like, I don't know. This seems like the kind of thing everybody's doing for a paycheck so they could, you know, trot it out on direct to video and move on with their lives. But I feel like there there is a lot of fun to be had. I like the fact that uh, Ben Schwartz, who plays John Raffio on Parks and Rec, is basically playing John Raffio. Yeah. He's <laughs> <laughs> one of those guys that's like, hey, no, I said I could work late. Not going to do it. I'll see you later. There's little things in here, though, that feel – that are just awkward and out of place. Like Jane Fonda being the narrator and then showing up for no reason at all at the end in a cameo. Like, why was that even there? I don't even know what purpose that served in the in the ultimate Fulfilling Jane story. Fonda's contract? I was like, okay. Uh, things like Michelle Monaghan, who's incredibly underrated. Written, but does like puts in a hundred times more effort into this character than anybody else in the world would have. So that she's actually entertaining to watch, despite her character being kind of a cardboard cutout of a character, if there ever was one. Um, really, the strength here is for me was when Sam Rockwell starts to become more Sam Rockwell like, and Olivia Wilde, who is you can't take your eyes off her. She is so she's always been freaking hot, but I mean. I, there's very few men who watch this film who wouldn't go, yeah, I totally would have done the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's Olivia Wilde. What are you going to do? No oh, jury yeah. in the land would convict me. <laughs> <laughs> Says a lot about our jury system. Uh, there's no bonus features on here of any kind, but I don't know. It's a curiosity for me is how I felt about it. It's got some good stuff with it, but it's one of those that I don't think anybody's going to be talking about in a few years. Oh, no. Remember. No, it, it's, a, it's a pass. It, you know what? Very much like what happens in the movie, it's a passing fling. It is. Just something that's fun for a while, and then it's like, okay. Hey, man, th- 
device that from last week, that dimensional thing, the light is going off on it. What? What? It's Why bl- is this even out? I mean, it's blinking. How can you put this jolly candy-like button out on the table and not expect me to push it? I mean, you're not actually going to push it. Though, I'm right? going to fucking push no, it. No, don't push it. I don't. I'm pushing the button. Push. Come in, Earth six sixteen. This is Earth twenty three forty two calling. <laughs> I'm here, alternate version of Chris. Or as I like to say, Chris Prime, <laughs> here with Richard. Or alternate Brian. Very, very alternate. <laughs> very alternate. Boy, Boy, a whole different set of occurrences happened, I can only guess, quite a few generations ago. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say there was a gerbil instead of a hamster. That's all I'm going to oh, say. Oh, that's not nice. No. I'm sure Earth-616's Brian is... Never mind. Anyway, uh, you know what? We've got a lot of titles to look at ourselves, so let's just jump right in with the, you know, the one that I know you're just dying to talk about. I couldn't believe I even saw that you wrote a, you wrote a review of this Austin <laughs> oh, Chronicle. Oh! Uh, which is Flowers in the Attic. This is a made for the Lifetime Network, which is something, okay, let me just get this straight. I usually will not watch anything Lifetime sends me. And boy, do they send me some crap. And I'm like, I, why do you keep sending me stuff for the Lifetime Network? I'm not going to watch this. But come on. Flowers in the Attic. There's no woman over 30 who doesn't have a guilty secret, like, like dog-eared copy of Flowers in the Attic in their house somewhere. <laughs> and the fact they're... Like, they made a movie in the 80s, I think it was. No, 1987. That, 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 Chris Swanson. That skipped all of the, like reason you would read flowers in the attic or see it at all like which Can is I say to, it? which is to Can say, I say the word do incest it. incest all incest. over the goddamn place <laughs> it is the most incesty book you will ever read uh it was written by a woman called vc andrews um if it was a smash it was a ni- 1979 this thing sold 40 million copies globally launched a franchise uh, vc andrews became such a huge commercial success that when she died her publishers hid this from the public and wrote another 39 books with her name on the cover <laughs> she like this woman was a a leviathan and it's basically about this rich family who lock the grandkids up in the attic for years and they start having sex with each other because yeah. they're, and it, it, it even gets creepier because they're like 13 and 14. It's super, super creepy. There's yeah. nothing that's not creepy about this. And we have Ellen Burstyn as the grandmother who is straight from crazy old grandmother central casting with <laughs> yeah, a, with a, 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 a willow switch. <laughs> we have Heather Graham as this, as playing, you know, the, well, you know, it's pretty much the Heather Graham character these days of occasionally looking googly-eyed. Wide-eyed. They look a bit concerned. All and smiles and happiness until the the script calls for something else. And, and you're going, look, this is finally a part which is, for her, which is actually creepier and more disturbing than Roller Girl. Uh, uh, it, it re- hey, now, there's nothing disturbing about Roller Girl. <laughs> Don't mess up my fantasies. <laughs> but, but this is, it's, it's so creepy. And... Uh, it's brilliant because when it starts to get really, really like, oh, God, oh, they're looking at each other like that. Ew, 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 ew. Yeah, you- then it cuts to commercial break because, as you said, it's made for TV. So it's really like they're going, oh, 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 it's about to get creepy. And now buy some Swiffers. Well, it's it's 
okay, so like the you know going back to the basic story here, you know it's Heather Graham's the mom. Uh, she's married to this guy. They're the perfect family. They even call themselves the perfect family repeatedly. In case oh, you missed it the first thirteen intolerably. times, you want them to get hit until by he a car. dies in a car accident, and <laughs> she's like, okay, well, we bought all this stuff planning on our future because he had a good job, but now uh, we don't know what we're gonna do. We're kind of fucked, so we're gonna go live with my mom. And, like, you didn't even tell us you had a mom. It's like, well, as, you know, as was briefly insinuated earlier, some people's are terrible moms. So one can only assume we're talking about Ellen Burstyn here. When they go to their giant mansion, she lives in and she's like, all right, you little shits can stay here, but you have to be quiet all the time. And you have to stay in this room, which is connected to the attic directly. And her husband, their grandfather, can never know they exist. And the idea is, is that Heather Graham is going to win back her father's affections so that she can get in the will. And he's very old and sickly. And she's like, once he dies, it's free and clear. We'll own this place and it'll be great. And, you know, things happen. Genetics and all. <laughs> time passes. Lots of time passes. I, you know, all right. Ding, 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 ding. Here's the thing. You know, to some degree, you have to b- blame a director, uh, Deborah Chow. I don't really know much about her career, but, you know, the only person in this whole thing who seemed like they were at least trying was Ellen Burstyn, who just was going from the rote book of how to play the evil grandmother, be fair. But she was putting some energy into it, at least. Heather Graham, I, I, she just felt sometimes like she was reading from a teleprompter to me. She definitely took one dimension away from a two-dimensional character. Yes. I mean, I will actually say that I, I think the best thing about this was uh, uh, Kin and Shipka. From, from Mad Men, yeah, who plays I, who, Don's daughter. Yeah, who plays the, the daughter who's locked up in the attic with her brother. <laughs> and they're two younger siblings. She's legitimately good in this, and she seems to understand that this is a this this is a creepy part. She doesn't play up the high camp gothic of it, and it basically is. It's a gothic romance in the same way that you know some gothic romances just are really not right. And it, this was the twilight of its era, and it it still is because. It's about really unpleasant sexuality. It's and it's not good. No. <laughs> oh, it's it's terrible. But it's terrible I mean, in all the ways that by that I was laughing and slack jawed uh, at alternate moments. Um, I mean, it's it's like a family gathering with the Lannisters. This is this is <laughs> so creepy and weird and funny and wrong. Um, that no. I, it's 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 looping round into actually you kind of need to see this. <laughs> Do I recommend that you you have this um uh in your collection? That is a really questionable one. If you have parties once in a while and you go, hey, we're all drunk. Who wants to see something really fucked up that was actually paid for by a mainstream cable network? Yeah, this is absolutely the well, you know I've read this book long time ago. This oh. girl I thought was cute and so her favorite book. Oh, you gotta read it. Okay, wow. This is really awful, but I'm gonna get through this. Uh, and about the time she said, hey, do you want to read the sequel, Petals in the Wind? I lost interest in her. So... <laughs> and the extras are well worth watching because um, watching the director and the producer 
try to dance around the fact that this is a creepy kid in having an incestuous relationship because they're locked away from daylight. Who, by the way, as the books go on, of which there are many, <laughs> end up becoming having a successful relationship and like being the heroes. Like you root for them to stay together. The seventies were a, a weird full time. blood brother and sister. This I'm is just it's, saying it's so creepy. But really, when you get to the end of the books, it's it's like hey, and the werewolf imprinted on the baby. <laughs> <laughs> it's just wrong, but I can't. There's I, something so car crash about it. I, I loved this. I really did. I, it you moved know, my heart. The thing about this is that I feel like there is a good movie, or at least a fun movie, to be made of this. And this isn't quite there for the same reasons you'd expect why anything on the Lifetime channel wouldn't be. They don't have the balls to go with the full follow-through. And there's... You know, I mean, like, you're like, you're going to have an incest scene. It shouldn't fade to black with the first kiss. It should get the audience to the point where you're screaming. Yeah. <laughs> you know, making you uncomfortable. And, you know, that being said as well, there is, like, whereas I thought Kieran and Shipka was fine in it, there's no chemistry between her and her brother. No. I mean, it is empty air every time they look at each other, supposedly, with any degree of lust. It's just, you can feel the dead weight. <laughs> it's just like, damn, this is, I don't believe this for a second. And that's the key. For this to work, I feel like that has to work. And that just left me so cold. There's scenes they left out of the book that would have been awesomely lurid, like where she walks in on him measuring his penis. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. Or when the younger kid is, has pneumonia and they don't know what to do, so they decide to like all like give some blood and feed him their blood. Why? I don't know. It's, it's worth a shot. <laughs> Science. In some ways, this actually improves over the book. Like the ending of the book is really like, and then they got away. Yeah. And you know, it's like what, whereas really? the 1987 version uh, ends with Christy Swanson uh, chasing her her mother. Um, Across the across the uh, the roof of the, uh, the the mansion, shouting, "Eat the cookie!" And then her mother falls off, gets caught in her wedding dress on a gazebo, and and is hung. And it's like, whoa, that's how you bring it to an end. But you can't uh, and, and a because, movie that wasn't planning on any sequels. Oh apparently. hell no! <laughs> Unlike Lifetime, who apparently is planning on adapting. They've already announced. They've already shown the trailer for oh the my sequel. God, really? What is wrong? What is wrong like, with you people? think you think this plot is crazy and soap opery and weird? The next book, I just read the synopsis on Wikipedia, and you should go and do that. If yeah. you watch this and read the synopsis for this and maybe the next book, and you'll be like, "Holy shit! This is like one of those movies that's like like Young Doctors in Love. It's a so it's a parody of soap operas. It's so intensely insane. <laughs> the shit that happens, I kind of gotta see it. <laughs> I." This is the kind of thing that John Waters these days would go. You know oh, what? Yeah. I can't push. I can't push the audience this far. It is too bad that Divine what couldn't have been alive yeah. to play the evil grandmother in this. And it only got made, I think, because they they took the blandest possible approach, which makes it even funnier. <laughs> well, you know what? Let's go to the other end of the spectrum and talk about one of the greatest movies ever made that just got a really nice re-release, and that is Orson Welles' classic from 1958. Touch of Evil. Now, this is part of a set. They just put out a double indemnity as well. But this one, it, the, really the remarkable thing about this is that there are three versions of this movie on here. There's the original theatrical release, which Orson Welles was extremely upset about, even though, I mean, it's still considered to be very much a classic. But he was upset because he made the, the 
the really terrible mistake of even though he was there every step of the way, all the way through it. Uh, in fact, he wouldn't have even been director if it wasn't for Charlton Heston, who was mm-hmm. the star the studio insisted on. And then Heston came in and said, if I'm going to be here, you have to let Wells be in complete control of this film. And they were like, oh, okay. Whose career was starting to go downslide at that point. <laughs> uh And Wells left during post-production. And so they studio, of course, totally chopped it to pieces and did whatever they felt like doing. Uh, there is the, uh, a, a cut that they put out with basically restored some of his footage they had initially taken out right before release, but then they decided, fuck it, let's just go to the theatrical release. Not, and the reason that's there mainly is because about 15 years ago or something, uh, they put that out as the original version in theaters to, you know, sell it over all over again but the best thing is this new restored version which is 151 minutes long uh or it says 112 on wikipedia but that is definitely not right um anyway this guy basically found it what was his name do you remember it's it's walter merch walter merch okay uh basically went by this 58 page set of notes orson welles had sent to the studio here's how you fix this movie that you just fucked up and the studio completely ignored it, but the, the, the notes still exist. In fact, the, the set comes with a, you know, the, the notes. You just, you pull it out. It's a whole booklet that you can read the original notes to, you know, to see what they changed. And there's a lot of changes yeah. in this version. It's really different from the original, but to be fair, I've seen both now and I do like this new version better. Now, if you've never seen this, this is one of those movies that every time you see it, you're going to like it a little more than the next time I found. It's Some movies go the other way. The Touch of Evil is a movie that I get more from it the more I watch it. Because yeah. the first time I watched it, I was like, yeah, that was good. I don't really see why it's considered one of the all-time greats, but I really like it. And this being, like, seen it multiple times now, I'm like, watching this again, it just gave me the chills down my spine watching it. The last, you know... Maybe five minutes of dialogue of this film is enough to just freeze your soul. It's so awesome. Uh, the story here opening with one of the greatest tracking shots in history. Yeah. Uh, you know, really intense. And one of the biggest changes, because this version removes the score from it, the Henry Mancini score from it entirely from that sequence. Uh, it follows Charlton Heston and his new wife. They're getting ready. They, you know, they're basically getting ready to go on their honeymoon, but right when they're there, there's a bomb that's gone off. It's killed, uh, a, a political dude. Uh, he's like, honey, I got to deal with this. I'm a, you know, I work for the Mexican government. I'm a, I'm a very respected high level sort of, I, they, I don't think they're ever clear. Like he's their version of the FBI or whatever. Yeah. You know? he, I think he's supposed to be a, a federale. Yeah. Uh, but you know, of course the cops on the other side come with Orson Welles and don't think Citizen Kane Orson Welles, like young, trim, attractive Orson Welles. This is Orson Welles. If he and the blob had a baby, he is the most toad-like, disgusting example of a human being imaginable, chomping on a giant brown stogie and just roaring out his dialogue like this. The fucking Mexicans. I mean, he's Cartman grown up. Yeah. <laughs> and he makes clear, I don't want this guy anywhere near this. And you'd think that a movie like this is going to be about some degree of competition between these two guys and trying to solve this murder. The murder has almost nothing to do with this movie <laughs> at all. In fact, it's really almost more of a red herring than anything else because the real story is about police corruption and Quinlan himself, who, you know, as it's clear, used to be a really good cop and slowly just the world broke him down and made him into this monster he kind of is now that's willing to plant evidence and do all sorts of horrible shit in order to, you know, predetermine who's guilty and who's not. It's it's the anti in the heat of the night. Oh, completely. Um, 
because it, it, it does have the weird casting choice of um, Charlton Heston uh, as an aristocratic Mexican. That is an odd uh, choice. Wearing it, shoe it's polish. Very, oh, it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you would not want to see this in color because it would be, um, yeah, no, not racially sensitive. No. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, this is, I think from a performance point of view, this may be Wells' best cinematic performance because he turns Quinlan into a a vile monster he shoots himself in a way to make himself look as appalling as possible he's up against Charlton Heston who you know? You take aside, you take away the um, the weird little moustache and and uh, the why is he slightly darker than he should be? Is the is the white balance out? Um, <laughs> you know, he really just makes himself look as loathsome as possible, um, and it's really a phenomenal performance. But you know, and he overshadows Charlton Heston at the point where Charlton Heston was a real actor and and, stopped, and wasn't just you know doing the Charlton Heston thing. Heston's good in it. He's very oh, yeah. good in it. But Wells is, like you said, he is at his best ever here and what makes that character so fascinating is that he is i mean he's a villain through and through but yet you're, he's a villain you feel by the end you feel real sympathy for because you see you know there's this famous line towards the end where they talk about like you know who shot him it was it was the cop he loved him he was a he was a, a terrific detective he was just a lousy cop yeah. <laughs> it was like all this great stuff like that about how like he believed in truth and justice and the American way and what have you and all these things, but like the, everything dissolved him, you know, to this mess that he is, this touch of evil that he has in him now. And you see sequences, especially when it comes to Janet Leigh, who plays, uh, screechingly Charlton Heston's new wife, who gets sort of spends most of the movie on an out of the way motel run by some <laughs> evil sleazebag Mexican drug lord guy who's slowly tormenting her with his rock and roll nephews. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you see that when it comes to the point, like, you know, Charlton Heston's like, it must follow the law. It's important to always follow the law until something personal comes along for him. And then he's like, you know what? Fuck the law. Yeah. And it's like that nice little touch where you're like, you know what? He could become him too, despite all his, you know, insistence that, that there's a fine line there. You can see he might even be the younger Quinlan in some ways. And I, I really feel that this is, it's almost like Wells sending a, a pointed message to Hitchcock because Hitchcock, a lot of his noir stuff, it, you almost feel like he, he's spending too much of the time going, I'm really good at this. Uh, or, you know, there's a little bit of a nudge and a wink. It was like, you know, oh yeah. And it, it wasn't as unrelentingly bleak and amoral as the best noir is. And Wells embraces that all the way through. This is, this is, I, I talked to the guy who organizes the LA Noir Festival and I said, well, what is, what is noir to you? He said, it's about good people making bad decisions yeah. or good people doing the wrong thing for the right reasons. And then it turns out it was still for the wrong reasons. So it's just a good person doing the wrong thing. And this is what that's about. And this is almost like post-noir in its own way in that, that this is like what happens after that noir story we never got to see to a cop who probably was good once and made so many bad decisions that he turned into, you know, the, he stared into the abyss too long as yeah. it were. Uh, there, you're right. There, I mean, you certainly can't not call this a noir film, but it stands out from all the others in that it's it really, doesn't hit most of those tropes that you expect. It's chronologically one of the very last, so it's got an, an yeah. immense amount of, of material to feed on 
and referent. Um, but then it's, you know, even in the, the mutilated version, you're still looking at Wells at the height of his powers. Uh, you know, that opening shot, which again, I'm always convinced, uh, convinced it's, it's a, it's a slight screw you to Hitchcock, you know, because you think of, of Hitchcock and Rope and his love of long tracking shots. You have this one that it's not the longest shot in the history of cinema, but it's so beautifully put together. You yeah. don't realize it's a single, single take until you go, that was a single take. And then you go back and watch it again glory of home of home <laughs> home entertainment and you go, look at it and go there's so much going on there's so many shifts of perspective there's so many changes in in how much is in frame who it's looking at where they're going what the sound is and i think that's why you know by that point wells was probably well used to the cinema's the, the studio screwing with his stuff. But the fact that he had designed something so perfectly that he could put a 58-page memo together going, put this back, <laughs> restore this. And Murch's um, version isn't, you know, it, it's not going to be absolutely what he would have, well, what, of course what Wells would have done if yeah. he'd have been in the in, in the room doing the Because when you're doing... as close as you can get. When you're actually doing post and you're there doing it, your new stuff is going to occur to you as you're putting it together. So obviously, yes, it would have been somewhat different. But this is as close as we're going to get to yeah. what Orson's vision was, and uh, I think it's pretty impressive. And even better, they have just reconstructed the shit out of this thing. I mean, they've over the years have done taken several passes on fixing this, and the negative has always been in good condition because everyone. This is one of those films where right off the bat, everybody knew this is this is a keeper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this looks amazing. They really. I mean, it's not even like sometimes these type of things they'll go over it too much digitally and they'll remove all the. Grain and it just looks kind of plastic this looks like film yeah and it, it's just amazing i was so impressed with both the sound and the uh picture one of the best black and white fix-ups i've yet to see there's also like i said that comes with the booklet uh 58 pages from wells so you can sort of compare and contrast and figure out you know what what was involved really with this really momentous and and gut ballsy undertaking. Uh, there's a 20 minute short documentary. It focuses on the film's production. Um, there's a uh, a look at overview of the the reconstruction. Uh, the original theatrical theatrical trailer. Multiple commentaries uh, on the various different versions that are on here. And so overall, yeah, this is the best version yet. Of yeah. this, I bet you somewhere Criterion's just pissed that they never had the chance. I to. yeah, I mean, and this is the thing. I mean, a lot of times you you look at films like this and go, oh well, you know, there's there's lots of editions out there, and th and this is something that happens with like Nosferatu. Where every six months, it's like another edition comes out. It, you know, is it really worth the investment? This is a fundamental piece of cinema treated well, treated with the respect that it deserves, and the three versions are distinct enough that they really, if you like cinema. This is something where you really need this. If you love cinema, this is unmissable because it's so pivotal and you can learn so much about the different. I mean, if you, this is basically a film school. Yeah. You know, this is about how do you edit a film to come out with completely different results? And then even down to things like, as you said, you know, when the score's there versus, you know, when the score's absent. This is really just a, a and I, I think the fact that it was Walter Murch. Who is a, uh, you know, one of the, the great sound guys of modern cinema? That he went and said, I need to put the sound back. It's not just the beat, it's not just the rhythm, it's the music, it's the mix. This is what I really need to do to make this what Wells wanted. And the fact that Wells is thinking in those ways just showed what a consummate filmmaker he was. And, and it, you know, it's still frustrating 
in so many ways that he never really got to make the kind of films and the number of films that he should have been allowed to. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, very, yeah, it's we, frustrating to look back on his career and wonder what if it happened if the studios had actually treated him decently at all. Yeah, <laughs> you know, given him, he just said, you know what, you're a real artist, and we wanna, we wanna give you whatever you want. To you're make a real artist, you and want. you make us money. Yeah, <laughs> why are we screwing with you? And I, I think eh. because he was incredibly difficult. Well, is, yeah. what, is partially what it comes down to. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, I, I, I think that's why Kubrick was allowed to do pretty much whatever he wanted, even though you know. He was far more difficult and kind of an asshole to his actors. Oh, yeah. Um, that Wells, you know, was so badly treated that it sets up for people like, you know, Kubrick, like Fincher, to be given the leeway in later films to really present some, present big budget cinema with, with intellect and artistry. Being able to look back and say, yeah, we fucked up that one. Yeah. <laughs> we screwed, we screwed Orson Wells. Bajoink. Where's the world in which we had 16 more Orson Wells films? Oh, <laughs> Orson Wells' Heart of Darkness. <laughs> Damn. Boo. Or the finished Magnificent Ambersons. Oh, boo. That would have been nice. Shut up, you're depressing me. <laughs> Sorry. Well, you know what? Let's go on to something that wasn't depressing. It was just goofy fun, which was the Korean film Confession of Murder. Now, the best thing I can compare this to you, and it's really not like that, but... There's some similarities in what it's going after is is natural born killers, yeah, sort of like the Korean version of that, but then again, not at all either. Uh, and it's odd that this. I mean, I will say this about this film: it's wildly uneven, yeah, like to say the least. It's totally all over the place. Is it an action film? Is it like a horror thriller? Is it a goofy comedy? Is it a Jackie Chan type stunt vehicle? It's kind of all those things at it's, any uh, given and time. And also a media satire as well. Yeah, and mo- yeah, most importantly, a media satire. It's it's poking fun at itself, which is why by the end, despite the fact that it is kind of a mess, I had to admit I had fun all the way through it because it was aware it was so tongue incredibly tongue-in-cheek about itself. It yeah. just It's a shame it couldn't have been... You know, it felt like it just needed a little more time to gestate because there's a great film hiding inside this, and what you get is just a fun film. It's it. If you look at the cover, you'll think this is, uh, you know, something in the in the vein of I saw the devil. Yeah, you know, really deep, dark, unpleasant Korean serial killer movie, which they do do very well. They do extremely um, well. <laughs> it's more like a serial killer version of the host which again has those those kind of weird tonal changes between horror uh and comedy it carries them off a lot better sure uh than confession of a murder does but like you know, i i had a, a really good time watching it not least because when it does pull off those tonal changes you realize it's actually for narrative reason um the basic idea is that a serial killer uh evades the police almost gets caught um, and then gives up his you know just disappears uh and apparently in in South Korea, and this is the weirdest thing about this whole yeah, film, I had to look what, this up this yeah, is true apparently. this is completely true uh, and south korea you may, you may need to fix this law they have now oh, right. as of two thousand and twelve it's changed as of so. as of this film coming out yes um <laughs> there is a statute of limitation on prosecutions of murder, yeah, fifteen years was what it was, which is ridiculous bonkers, but fifteen years after the murders finish this guy comes forward and said it was me and i wrote a book i've written a book (laughs) and there's nothing you can do about it and i've come to apologize yeah and the the policeman who came closest to getting him uh becomes obsessed with him the families of the victims become obsessed with getting this guy but there's something 
not right going on? Why is this guy coming forward? Why is the police officer seemingly in conflict with the families who've decided, no, we're going to go kill him? And the, the, the families are kind of the goofiest thing yeah. about this because they're both out for revenge against this guy who is an a monster, a yeah. true monster, but they're kind of goofy and funny and inept and it... And the weird casting of a guy who 15 years ago probably would have been six. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're like, how could that possibly be the killer? Well, that's Korean casting. They That's not uncommon to cast. I just thought really he was aging really well. That was that was my theory. It was but just you're like, oh, he's now he's, he's good It's looks. got genuinely intense scenes in this movie. Yeah. Like the initial chase scene oh, is yeah. like, you sit right up and go, wow, this is really badass. So this guys chasing each other with parkour and just both almost dying multiple times during the length of it. It's super intense. And then there's a scene in an ambulance as all these cars are chasing uh, an ambulance with the killer inside of it. And people are literally jumping from car to car. And it's that just so crazy. One of the best car chase fight sequences. Yeah. I have seen in years. The, I, you know, the only thing I think I've seen better and it was sadly going, if I hadn't have seen this in the last two weeks, I would have said this is the best, uh, is The Raid 2. It is, sure, it's sure. almost as good as that, it's, which is crazy because yeah. that's so good. But it's so, the odd thing about this film is the f- scenes like that are, are not what this movie is about. They're like punctuated here and there with action scenes like that, but then they'll be punctuated with really goofy comedy sequences. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's just like, what is this movie even? What is it trying to do? And it all becomes clear once it gets to the, the third act, which offers a major twist. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that basically you have to, you have to accept the part about this film being a media satire and a comedy to swallow this twist. But, but once it happens, it just adds to the fun of the whole thing, quite yeah. frankly. And then uh, you get a big, almost, it's a mad, 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 mad world chase for the, the killer across town. And I honestly <laughs> think that it, I, you know, I, I had the same problems with you for the first two acts, that it's kind of like, I don't know where you are at this moment. Am I supposed to feel sympathy? Am I supposed to be laughing? And knowing where it goes in the third act, I went, I want to go back and watch those first two again to see how it really works together. And was I just not watching it the right way? Because the third act, I think, ties everything together incredibly well it does the tone together to make it work i think it does too but it also is one of those you have to suspend your disbelief quite a bit that all of these things could work the way that they did they they would but then again you know initially when i first watched it i was suspending my disbelief that korea had a statute of limitation on murder prosecution it seems not so it's like you know no it's that was the i had to pause it right when they said i was like oh bullshit yeah i looked it up it's like yep sure enough and there was a pretty big deal about it where it was like there was this is, I guess, the actual case of the guy coming out, like, afterwards and saying, yeah, I did it, and they couldn't do anything is actually true. Yeah. Like, and then the, they came up with the idea based on that for the movie. Uh, you know, and that was kind of the turning point where they went, you know, we really, this is ridiculous. We yeah. need to, we can't, I mean, how could we possibly let that guy just walk Haven't they now that? done something even sillier, like, now it's just 25 years? It's not yeah. even they got rid of it. It's like 25 years. It's like, d- oh, why really? not just make no... Why do you even have to have a statute of limitations It just doesn't need murder? to make an awful lot of sense. It, do, it really doesn't. And there's for, it wasn't just murder. There was a few other major crimes as well. There was, you know, very short statute of limitations. I was like, <laughs> seriously? Uh, but I gotta say, ultimately, this is a lot of fun. You're, it's gonna constantly twist and turn on you. There's a lot of 
really hysterical moments. There's some action moments that are jaw dropping. Yeah. Um, yes, it's uneven as hell, but I think ultimately once you get to the end, you're going to realize that you had a great time. Yeah. Oh no, I, this is, this is a blast of a movie. Um, and I think it continues my, my firm belief that I will give anything that comes out Korea at the moment, uh, other than pop music. Yeah. Yeah. You know, at least 10 minutes just to, just to, you know, I will give you that benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Always all the various companies I deal with who, who send me Blu-rays, um, they know at this point if it's like, if, if it's got Asian people in it, send it to, send it to us. <laughs> he will end up watching and reviewing it for the show. Cause I like the unpredictability of the films, you know? I mean, you have no idea yeah. what kind of stuff you're going to get. It could look like a serious historical romance and you might end up with like a serial killer comedy. Who knows? You know? I did actually get sent a few years ago, uh, for no readily apparent reason, uh, a whole bunch of Japanese, uh, high school beach movies. Mm-hmm. Where, which really just play out completely straight. There is no twist in them. You, you know, the, it's basically somebody trying to find the next Asian Annette Funicello. Oh, the um, Japanese Gidget. Yeah, it's really <laughs> just bizarre. But those are the only ones where you're not really thrown for a loop every five minutes. Well, you know, Japanese culture specifically went to that period where they were aping so many different specific aspects of American culture that it was like almost quaint. <laughs> you know, and their music had the same thing. Did you ever see when they went through their rockabilly period? Oh, yes. Yeah, that was Guitar Wolf and stuff. They're all these oh, Japanese guys yep. with huge pompadours and everything. Quiff that will poke your eye out. <laughs> I loved it. Anyway, let's move on to our next title. Now, sadly, I, d- I did not get a chance to get this one to you. So, unfortunately, just I saw it. But this oh, just is... Tell me. Tell uh, me more. It's a 1948 film called Sleep My Love, directed by the great Douglas Sirk and starring Claudette Col- Colbert. Uh, every time I say Colbert, I can only think of Stephen Colbert. So <laughs> I'm pic- repicturing this whole movie in my mind with her, like, making pseudo-conservative quips. Uh, but she was... At- Although she was, in fact, a serious conservative, she was also... A, a huge lesbian, so, ah. <laughs> as it turned out. Oh, log cabin Republicans, when will you learn? <laughs> she is plays a woman who's like about as naive as you can get. I mean, she is just wide eyed and bushy tailed about the whole world, and to the point you're like you're just kind of like you're kind of dumb, aren't you? <laughs> uh, but she is very well off, and she lives with her husband, played by a very young Don Don Amici. Amici, am I pronouncing that right? I think it's Don Amici. Don Amici, yeah, who people might remember from uh, Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd's Trading Places. Was Don Amici ever young? I, yeah, right. I am shocked. But he was in this. Really? And it's clear right from the beginning that something is going on. Uh, she, when the movie starts, she wakes up on a train bound for Boston and is like, how did I get here? I have no idea how I got here. Uh, and she, her, her husband tells the police, look, she sleepwalks and she threatened me with a gun and left. Uh, and this is clear, very clear in the film is that this guy knows that she's capable of sleepwalking and has figured out how to manipulate her and is trying to first prove that she's unstable and then eventually get her to kill herself so that he can inherit all the money that comes from indeed her side of the family ah. and he can go off with his, uh, femme fatale played by, uh, Hazel Brooks, who by the way, I was very unfamiliar with and holy shit, look up Hazel Brooks. She is a knockout. Huh? A woman, if there's ever one born to play femme fatales besides Barbara Stanwyck, you know, <laughs> it was her. Uh, now, this unfo- is fu- this, 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 this sleepwalking plot, it's sounding suspiciously familiar. Yeah, it's a lot like Gaslight, I'm oh. afraid. Only Gaslight is a whole lot better. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, there's fun stuff in here. One of the things is uh, her husband makes her see a psychiatrist named Dr. Reinhardt, who is actually the dad of the the girl the husband's in love with or, or works for. I don't know. They're related in some way. It's never I was never really clear if he's her dad or he's her boss or whatever, but they're connected. Um, and they keep doing a thing where, like, Dr. Reinhardt's really creepy and threatens her, but then the moment she calls out, he takes off and hides, and they're like, nobody was here. What are you talking about? You know, trying to drive her crazy. But unfortunately, getting in the way of their plan is Robert Cummings, who's a handsome young man who, for no reason anyone can make out at all, except that he's probably secretly interested in her money and wants to kill her in some later sequel, uh, <laughs> has decided he's obsessed with Claudette Colbert, even though knowing she's married, and is just like, I'm gonna have that. You better believe I'm gonna have that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not saying that to the film, but he might as well be. He's just you know what? I'm going to make sure she's okay. I'm going to follow her around. I'm going to keep bugging her. I'm going to take her out to parties. You're like, and she's so naive. She has probably has no clue that this guy, I mean, he could be sucking on her toes and she'd be like, Oh, what a good friend. (laughs) But he's the one who of course starts putting together. Something is, is a little queer here. Something's going on wrong. And you know, it's a noir. It's just a lesser noir. It's put together well, this re-release on Blu-ray. It's from Olive Films, which means it's bare bones. It's just the film. Yeah. And it's certainly interesting to see the young Don Amiche and uh, Claudette Colbert, who's, of course, a wonderful actress, but here is really overdoing it like crazy. <laughs> and like I said, it's one of those you go, yeah, it's nice and all, and it's it's not what you call a sensual noir in your collection. I'm a, I would gladly own any of the classic noirs or the subclassics or even the not really a classic at all, but it, I guess it's technically noir films from the period. Cause I'm yeah. just a big fan of the genre. This probably fits somewhere in the middle of those categories. Uh, but you know, go see gaslight. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> what it comes down. Which to. I'm fairly sure there must be one of a, one of a dozen different versions available by now. Uh, I have not seen them release it on Blu-ray. It might be, but not that really? I've seen. So, uh, anyway, like I said, it's okay. Uh, so let's keep on moving with our last title, which is, I would consider to be a major classic myself. Yes. And it is not everybody's cup of tea, but... Well, that's because some people are wrong. <laughs> that's true. This is a 1988 adaptation of Alice, uh, in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And by that, I mean, it's not an adaptation of the Disney adaptation. It's nope. not an adaptation of anybody else's adaptation. It is not even a fairy tale version. This is a, as close as you get to Lewis Carroll's original story, which is to say he's adapting a girl having a kind of nightmarish dream. And it's done by genius stop motion animator, yeah. John Svankmeyer. This, this remains one of the landmark pieces of stop motion animation. Um, yeah, one of the greatest ever made. It's, because it doesn't restrict most stop motion it's a small box a little scene and you move a character and you keep it within an enclosed world as Frank Meyer didn't he did stop motion in the middle of a, a barren field um, in a barn by a riverside the scale of some of his stop motion work is here and, and this was pretty much just him this has a tiny tiny cast when you watch it and realise that this is a work of true obsession um, it's unnerving, it's disturbing, it's brilliant, uh, it's... It's at points beautiful. Oh, 
like hauntingly beautiful yeah. at points. And the fact that there's a live action actress throughout this whole thing interacting with all the stop motion stuff going on around her, and it doesn't generally have that sort of stilted feel. I mean, this was clearly a, you know, we're going to take our time and do this right type of stop motion film. And, and it's kind of been forgotten a little bit as a piece of cinema. But it has. this changed everything. Mm. You know, his aesthetic was immensely influential. Uh, you know, the K brothers, obviously, you know, their, their work. But yeah. you can feel it in, I think, a lot of 1990s uh, industrial and goth culture was oh, really influenced well, by this. Tool made, Tool. A, made a point of saying... We bow our heads to both the Quay brothers and to John Sankmeyer, yeah. who influence everything we do. Yeah, and yeah. it's, um, you know, his use of, of just the weirdest things to make his puppets. Oh, my God. The, it's so creepy that most of the creatures in here are like half taxidermied animals. And that is, fu- I mean, the the the, uh, the rabbit alone, which yeah. literally we see taxidermied pulling nails out of its own hands at first. So it can break out of its like you know little container it was in, and, and it's and clearly bits of, bits of its own sawdust from off the the pocket. Yeah, wash, that it keeps which in its is own so stomach. Yeah, it regularly eats has to eat sawdust to keep refilling itself because its stomach is cut open, <laughs> so it can keep reaching in and getting its pocket watch. It's it's so distressing and so brilliantly done. It's, there's very few films I think that are so ill remembered. But so changed how a, a whole aesthetic, and in take that aside, it's so good. It's just captivating. It's literally captivating. Oh yeah, the, you the, can't tear your eyes away from that it. I, I can use for it because it's you know it's this small girl with these being put in these nightmarish situations and things growing and shrinking and animals that are made out of spare parts of other animals. And, yeah, and. and all this done by Svenkmeyer just sitting there doing this by himself. With like a crew of like 10 people in total, including his editor. I almost recommend... His accountant. I almost recommend watching this side by side with watching, reading like the Wikipedia synopsis of Lewis Carroll's original book. Yeah. Because a lot of the stuff in here you have never seen in any other adaptation of Alice. But it's stuff that was in Lewis Carroll's original book. Yeah. And, uh... It's it's weird to see like how true that actually is how how true in some ways this is to that now in other ways this is still very much a John Svankmeyer oh yeah dreamlike interpretation uh, he he said like his quote was to make the story play out like an amoral dream which is yeah. exactly what it is it's this little girl having a dream and little kids don't always dream of sweetness and light <laughs> you know it's dark yeah uh, and 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 frightening. Yeah, I love this film to pieces. Uh, there's so many just neat, neat things along the way of this. Just a lot of stuff you just, you can't even figure out how he did, really. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I love this movie. Sadly. Particularly the, 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 the there's one shot where the rabbit is going across a recently tilled field. And it's a real field. And it's a taxidermied rabbit doing stop motion. And you will watch this and just go, how? I actually don't know how you did that. Yeah. The amount of effort to do that is just ridiculous. Yeah. Agreed. And uh, Now, this is a Blu-ray. And thank God, finally, they put it on Blu-ray. It's been on Netflix for a while. It may or may not still be on Netflix. It I'm is. Not, is it? it? Okay. Is, but, yeah. uh, in fact, I had just watched this 
like a year ago on Netflix again anyway. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's, that's cool. It's Alice. Let's watch that. But came on Blu-ray. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to watch it again. Yeah. <laughs> it's just that good. Uh, and Zach, I'm, the thing I keep hoping for, and this is like totally talking about Criterion, something I wish they would do, is collect all his short films oh, into yeah. a set because it, you know, it's kind of hard to find them. I've seen places like Vulcan Video in town will have like kind of bootleg copies of old DVDs, like the collections of his early short films. That's what he was really known for. And they are, wow, just yeah. mind blowing, all those short films. Hopefully eventually we'll see that. But for now, this is a relatively inexpensive Blu-ray you can get. There's not really anything in the way of extras, but you don't. And it's sad because boy, would I love to see people talk about the making of this and get into detail about it. Uh, but you know, the film is what it is and it is pretty fucking amazing. Yeah. Well, anyway, that is it for our universe's, uh, uh reviews. Uh, I guess, unless you had anything else you wanted to bring up before we. No, I'm just wondering what Parallel Brian is doing. Yeah, you know what? We should probably check in on him, I guess. Oh, uh, Brian 616. Brian, hello. I told you not to push the button, Brian. That's weird. Why does that keep happening? I don't know. I don't think it's real, though. Who are those people? Well, the one guy says he's me, but I don't remember doing that. And the other guy says he's alternate universe version of you. But we also have a guy named Richard with an English accent who appears on stuff. So I, I don't, don't know what the it. hell's going on there. It's it's like a pretty similar universe, but still evil, I imagine. And how come I didn't get sent touch of evil? What the fuck? I don't know. Maybe it didn't co- only came out in that universe. Anyway... Uh, I believe we've reached that time in the show when, uh, what is it that we call it? It's this thing we always oh, say oh, every oh, week. Oh, oh, Mr. Carter. Oh, uh, Brian. I believe it's the giveaway. So, yes, the last title we're going to talk about is also going to be our giveaway, and that is Zero Charisma. Fuck yeah. Awesome. I'm so happy to talk about this. I'm so happy it got distribution. It was filmed right here in town and stars our friend Sam Eidson, and it is awesome. It's it a, really is. It's a really great little comedy about... Uh, you know, about Dungeons and Dragons, about getting a little too into, uh, what it is that you love and, and to the point that you kind of become a tyrant. Like, that's kind of the thing that I love most about, uh, about Zero Charisma is it pre- presents the other side of geekdom where it's like, we see a lot of geeks being bullied. We don't see a lot of geeks as bullies, and that's exactly who Sam plays in this movie. Oh, I've known a lot of the bully geeks along the years. They I mean, in film. <laughs> I mean, we see, yeah, we see them in real life. Brian, but... to Brian. What? <laughs> no. How am I a nerd bully? I'm just kidding. Come on. Fuck you. I'll give you a wedgie later. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this uh, this film just kind of follows uh, Scott Wiedemeyer, who Sam Eidson plays, who is a... Uh, How can you not be a nerd if your last name is Wiedemeyer? I, I know, You're right? pretty much doomed. Yeah, yeah sorry. Uh, there is no other course for you. But, yeah, he's a, a dungeon master, and he is kind of... He has a small group of friends that he's really just kind of the boss of it's it's more like flunkies than friends yeah. he's the he's the alpha geek mainly because he's the biggest of them all and will throw his weight around and they just want to play D and there is really nobody else that they know they can play D with so they just kind of yes okay yeah they put up with his like going off on rants so they can have their regular group until a new alpha geek shows up in town and you know one who's kind of a cool guy yeah he's like good looking guy he's got a hot girlfriend uh he's a has hipster. lots of friends uh well according to his movie's definitions he's a hipster he seems like every other person really <laughs> well that's Just, and that's that's the funny thing is he starts out like 
being like this really cool guy and then like the more we find out that he's a hipster the yeah. the douchier he becomes yeah. and i think the movie's got like an anti-hipster agenda. i mean i i think that it does have that agenda and if i had any problem at all it's that ultimately they do sort of show how shallow he really is for this but it, that never really completely clinched with me the fact that he's not playing the game just to be like 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 ironic he genuinely wants to play the game and is really nice about it to people which is totally unhipsterish. <laughs> yeah i mean his his biggest flaw is just that he tries to have his cake and eat it too he wants yeah. to play the game he'll hang out with these guys because they because they worship him he's the coolest person they've ever seen yeah but he also won't invite them to his like hipster gatherings because like he it's because yeah. yeah, he again. knows they won't fit in to exactly this other thing which he's probably right about but still is the wrong call because you know what here's their chance to step up in society and to I, become a hipster themselves right and he says no no more hipsters. We're hip full. I wish. I wish that was something you could actually be. But I think that's the the greatness about this film is it does deal with a lot of complex relationships within sort of the geek sphere. It's not it's not one world that geeks live on live no. in. You know, like they're various stratum, and I feel like that's what this movie gets gets to the heart of. And it was produced and is being distributed by Tribeca Films. It's being distributed by Tribeca Films. It was produced by Nerdist Industries. Well, no, I, I don't think they produced it. They're just also part of the distribu- distribution. Oh, I thought they were one of the no, producers. They discovered it after it was done, just oh, like okay. everybody else did. Well, they're distributing it along with Tribeca, and we have uh, we have a copy on DVD. Two copies. Two copies. Two or three. I, I still don't know until they show up. But Well, we have at least two copies to give away, and the way we're going to do that, as you know, we've kind of moved into a creative writing prompt style giveaway here on the site, so the first thing you're going to want to do is follow uh, one of us on Twitter, which is at one of us net. We do this via Twitter. And then you're going to tweet at us the worst D&D character name you can possibly think of. I mean, I like it. that episode of Community where it's just like Hector the Well-Endowed, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff where it's like that is a horrible name. Uh, so go ahead and, and tweet at us the worst D&D character name you can think of. Hashtag that 0C giveaway and uh, we will pick a couple of our favorites and those people will get sent copies of Zero Charisma. And this is open to U.S. residents only. Sorry, guys. And there's another tie of this movie into one of us, uh, .net that we didn't even mention. It stars our very own John Golson. John Golson! From, uh, who plays a, a role on Infinite Variations on yes. radio drama. Yes, he plays a, the comic book store owner in here who has multiple scenes in the film. So if nothing else, you can check this out just to see what John Golson looks like. Yep, there you <laughs> have it. And yeah, it's, like I said, it's a local film. It's really good. And we're, we're very proud to be able to, uh, to promote it and to give away copies. We really are. Hooray! Hooray for us. Hooray for digital noise. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of the episode. So once again, you can find the show on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast. You can follow the website on Twitter at One of OneOfUsNet. Or you can follow us individually on Twitter. I'm at Guy Salisbury. I'm at Chris Cox Critic. And, of course, we are on Facebook as well. Facebook.com slash OneOfUsNet. Become a subscriber. Uh, subscribe to us. Not only on iTunes and Stitcher, but in the monetary sense as well. Like I said, we've got some great incentives coming for you there. Uh, you're going to want to be a, a part of the inner sanctum of one of us. Show me the money! Yes, please. <laughs> We're, bills are coming due. And uh, please use our Amazon links. If you are wanting to purchase anything from Amazon, just get their VR links, and then whatever you buy benefits the site, and we appreciate it. But that's pretty much it. We're we're pretty much that's it. That's it for digital noise this week. Sorry, I could make some shit up. Uh, the basement boy, a film from Hungary. Nope, nope. That, we're not doing nope? that. Okay, how no, about that... uh, 
Airstrike, uh, 80s classic, little Ooh. seen by people with, a, uh, with a, I don't know who's in that one. Brian Bosworth. Brian Bosworth. Yeah, totally. And, uh, and uh, uh, Louis Gossett Jr. Louis Gossett Jr. Yeah. <laughs> I want to watch this movie. And Christian Slater. Why are you making up movies I want to watch, damn it? <laughs> uh, I better end this show before this gets any more heated, so I will just end it as I usually do by saying, no release is too big, no release is too small, from Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all.